That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Part of the job, or part of my job, is pointing out things that you see that aren't right. We were talking on yesterday's show about C.J. McCollum, former trailblazer who was uh, complaining that some people in sports media don't quite know what they're talking about. Here's what C.J. said on that front. But it's always about what you didn't do as opposed to people celebrating what you've accomplished. I think that's the problem with this sport. At times, I think too too many people have a voice. And as a journalist, like you respect the ability to be able to talk and to speak up and to critique. But I think at times the wrong people are speaking and they're not educated on the topics they're speaking on. And it's flooding, it's flooding the realm of our social media world. That might be part of it, CJ, but uh, uh, scientists will tell you that our brains are hardwired to focus on negativity. Primitive man may have, uh, may have enjoyed a sunset, but first he needed to look up and register the threats that were around him to avoid death. So it's kind of uh, the negative stimuli is part of the gene pool, isn't it? I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com, and it, I got to thinking that there's a lot more to this C.J. McCollum conversation that we started yesterday than, than meets the eye. Oh, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be all over the place. An NBA referee with a burner account? Well, that wouldn't surprise anybody. We'll talk about that, plus uh, Pac-12 baseball tournament, plus... Pac-12 football. We get a visit from Brandon Huffman, national recruiting analyst and editor at 24-7 Sports. We'll take some phone calls. Anna's back from her exclusive tour of Taiwan. She will have the 5 at 5, but I want to start by why it is that we focus on things that are wrong versus right. And I don't mean we sports media. I mean we people. The Stoics will tell you that you shouldn't worry about things you can't control that people spend a lot of time worried about things that are out of their control, that they have no business thinking about, and ultimately that is a time suck. It isn't productive. There's nothing you can do about it. But uh, also it probably is a little bit hardwired in us to focus on that kind of stuff, that worry, that concern, that anxiety, the negativity in general, because of the way that the gene pool is passed down. It probably explains why bad news and a little bit of fear-mongering gets the clicks, right? You always see that. It gets the clicks. There's a story out there today, some fear-mongering going on again from the Big 12 footprint, where a, a reporter, and I'm using air quotes there, using unsourced uh, materials is saying that the Pac-12 schools are, are about to be informed that they're only getting a $20 million distribution per school, and it's going to set off the Big 12 conference going to 20 teams and the Big Ten Conference may be taking Oregon and Washington, and I'm here to tell you that, unfortunately, I ran that 
up the flagpole, and I say unfortunately because I feel like I'm bothering the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors with a bunch of fear-mongering and anxiety and rumors, and the Stoic philosophers would say, Gonzano, just settle down, wait for the Pac-12 conference to announce their media rights deal. Uh, but I'm being told that the Pac-12 uh, conference is still confident that they are going to get a distribution that is in excess of $31.6 million, which is what the Big 12 got, and that there is nothing to the $20 million report. It's just not accurate. Whatever the case, it's fear-mongering, it's bad news. Maybe we're just more inclined to put our brains on the threats that are around us because that's how primitive man lived and survived. Those who were conditioned and in the practice of worrying and paying attention to the threats that were imminently around them survived more often. And so, therefore, you had natural selection that involved that. Uh, hardwired to focus on negativity, C.J. McCollum is saying that uneducated people who are criticizing NBA players have no business in that space. I disagree with that. I think that um, you know you don't have to have played in the NBA to become an analyst. You don't have to have played Major League uh, Baseball or football to talk about baseball or football. Um, I wouldn't want to see somebody who hadn't been formally trained as a surgeon try to perform a surgery. But I also think like you don't need to have been a chef to sit in a restaurant and fill out a Yelp review or become a food critic. Just educate yourself. And that's where CJ and I, I think, align is I don't want to see uneducated people who haven't taken the time to get sourced, who haven't taken the time to educate themselves. Some Yahoo who signs up for a Twitter account and has an email address. That's the only qualification to get a, a Twitter account, as far as I know. You have to have a valid email address. That doesn't qualify you to be a reporter, an analyst. And and I think people are being more and more uh, careful uh, about the sources that they follow and who they listen to, especially in today's world. But I got to thinking today, I wrote about the Pac-12 baseball tournament in my column today, because you know I think the Pac-12 got the tournament right. Remember last year, the Pac-12 had asked the baseball teams to, uh, to uh, participate in an ultra marathon in the middle of the desert. Oregon State played that that game with UCLA last year where, you know, it, it went five hours. Uh, they played nine and a half hours of baseball in two games on one uh, one quarterfinal matchup with UCLA. Uh, they had 527 pitches thrown in one game, uh, 16 combined pitchers in that game. Then they played again, and when the game ended, that quarterfinal game ended, uh, or semifinal game ended, it was 11.31 p.m. in Arizona. Oregon State won the game. It was also 88 degrees at 11.31 p.m. And then the Beavers had to turn around the following morning, less than 25 hours later, and play for the championship of this tournament. It was a mess. We talked with Mitch Canham, the Oregon State baseball coach, about that in my interview with him about a week ago. And he basically said, look, we got together at the end of the season. We broke it down. We talked about what went well, what we didn't like, what we'd want to change. And he said, you know, he liked the fact that he got to sit down to find a way to make the tournament better alongside the other coaches. And so there's a whole bunch of changes in the tournament that is going on right now in Arizona. If you're a Pac-12 fan, Pac-12 teams have been playing this week. They will continue to play through Saturday in Arizona. But they took, they went to a pool play system. They have three games scheduled per day, not four. The semifinals will be held tomorrow. The championship game is Saturday not Sunday, and the whole aim here is to not end up with a bunch of rubber arms 
in the Pac-12 conference and then send them off to the regional. Because remember last year, I think they played too many games. They didn't really know what they were doing. Whoever put the tournament together wasn't thinking about pitch count, workload, the 90-degree heat every day. And as Mark Wasikowski, the baseball coach at Oregon, said, he said the pitching got chewed up. He said it was a great idea, but the format needed some tweaks. So for those of you out there, um, you know, I think who are who are interested in Pac-12 baseball or in the Pac-12 in general or in sports in general, I think it was a great example you know, from last year's tournament to this year's tournament, of an entity paying attention to what happened and then pivoting and saying, okay, that didn't work. It didn't work to play four games a day. It didn't work to have a double elimination tournament instead of pool play and have Oregon State and UCLA playing a semifinal. Uh, Oregon State blew a lead in the first game of the semifinal and then had to play the second game and didn't work. It put too much strain on the pitching staffs in the conference. And then here came the regionals, the NCAA regionals a week later. Keep in mind, uh, the teams that played a week after the, uh, the, the Pac-12 tournament didn't do well. You know, Stanford made it to the College World Series, but Stanford didn't have the workload because they were the one seed, and they didn't lose a game, so they got to the championship game, they got a chance to sit and... And Stanford, by the way, even though they had that less taxing path to the conference tournament championship, eventually they advanced to Omaha, and they give up 17 runs in the opening game. And they get knocked out in two. Like, they didn't even win a game in Omaha. So, it, you know, maybe it was an outlier, but I also look at the way that the conference tournament taxed the pitching staffs. Oregon and UCLA were eliminated in the opening round in the regionals. Oregon State made it out of the regionals but got knocked out the following week in the Super Regionals. Stanford got to Omaha but gave up 17 runs, a season-high 17 runs in the opening game. And I couldn't help but think that the Pac-12 tournament was responsible for some of the dismal postseason play in baseball. I think it was a good idea to have a tournament. I think it showcased the teams. But uh, I think the coaches would never have wanted to do it again. And lo and behold, the Pac-12 tweaked the format, came up with this uh, version of the tournament with pool play, only three games a day versus four, semifinals on Friday instead of Saturday, championship game on Saturday instead of Sunday, and it it gives all the teams an extra day of rest and a less strenuous path to the Pac-12 championship. Uh, I would like the Pac-12 to do the same kind of tweaking, with football officiating. I'd like it to tweak men's basketball, do a study of men's basketball, and try to figure out how it can help the programs the same way it did with baseball. I would like to see the Pac-12 get some help with the uh, branding and the public relations strategy. Um, the, you know, I, I think this is a great opportunity uh, for a conference to realize that, hey, we had a problem. We had some shortcomings you know, in this baseball event, and they got together and they fixed it. So I'm going to ask you this off the top of today's show. As I talk about this, I think about problems that I see in the NBA, in Major League Baseball, in the NFL, and in college sports. And I think about, you know, look, the Pac-12 did this right. So I want to throw this question to you as a listener of this show, wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing today on this beautiful sunny day in the Pacific Northwest especially, I would ask you to tell me, When we talk about things that leagues get right and sports entities get right, Pac-12 basketball 
baseball tournament rather this year, they got it right. What comes to mind? Who's getting it right in sports? And when we talk about the negativity and who's getting it wrong, what kinds of things would you like to see examined? And you don't even have to have the solution. Like I think a lot of times sports radio becomes call in and tell me what's wrong and give me the solution. I'm not necessarily looking for the solution today, but I'm just asking you as a listener of this show, when I talk about things that are wrong in sports, things that don't make sense, things that need deeper examination, what comes to mind in your world? Is it the NBA draft lottery and the tanking that goes on in sports? Is it the NFL and, you know, flexing games and rule changes? Or maybe it's such a quarterback-centric game and such a violent game at the same time that sometimes your quarterbacks don't get to the end of the season? Is it the fact that the NFL has become and gets criticized for being more like uh, flag football? Andy Reid, Kansas City Chiefs coach, saying, hey, it's becoming more like flag football. My, my thing is, where does it stop, right? So you start taking pieces and, uh, you know, We'll see how this goes, but you don't want to take too many pieces away or you'll be playing flag football. You're going to be playing flag football, Andy Reid. Tell me when you, what you see that needs tweaking when you look at your sports landscape. Uh, 503-417-7575 is a phone number. we got a good show for you today. Stephen, when I throw that question to you, what needs addressing? What needs tweaking? What pops to mind for you? Uh, the first thing that I thought of was college football and you talk about what what doesn't have an answer i don't know what the answer is but with the play new playoffs coming in and the bowl games something has to be figured out i don't know what it is i don't know if the bowl games are going to be a part of the actual playoff or if they're going to get rid of some bowl games or they're going to add bowl games but there's a lot of questions for me on what exactly that means because i do think that bowl games are important in college football i mean you look at oregon state last year getting to the las vegas bowl playing florida that was a big moment for them and it was a big moment for a lot of schools that are down. I mean, if Colorado wins six games this year, it's going to be big to go to a bowl game. So I think there is some importance outside of the college football playoff. But right now, with all the focus on that, focus on you know the transfer portal, NIL, all this stuff, all that seems to matter is the college football playoff and if you make mm -hmm. it. So I think something's got to – got to figure something out. Something's got to so happen because so so I like the bowl games. Look at the bowl games, basically, and figure out how to make the bowl games matter. And, you know, there's been talk about – you know, how could they rope the bowl games into the playoff? Could they rotate them and, and do other things? But I actually think the bowl games maybe should be set up, you know, with a different format. I'd love to see, like, the Big 12 against the Pac-12, the highest-ranked teams that don't make the playoff from those respective conferences get matched up in an annual bowl game that is for bragging rights. And, and let's put an NIL number on it. You know, each player on the winning team gets $5,000 from Allstate or Farmers Insurance or whoever the sponsor is as an NIL bonus and attach a little meaning to the thing. Like, you know, we're going to get four crossover games between the Pac-12 and the Big 12 this year. There's going to be a lot of speculation, a lot of people looking at it going, Colorado against TCU. Let's see what happens there. Oregon's playing Texas Tech. Utah's playing Baylor. Arizona State is playing Oklahoma State. And people are going to go, okay, Let's see who wins those games. But my problem with that format is it's not the best teams from each conference playing each other. Like USC is not playing the best team from the Big 12. I'd love to see just some crossover like that. But I like your, I like your idea. Like, let's examine the bowl season and figure out how to make it more meaningful. It's not a bad thing. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575 is the number. What are we fixing? Mike's in Springfield. Mike, what do we need to fix? 
ticket pricing and merchandise pricing for the lower to middle low middle income families you know you, you can't hardly take families can't hardly take kids to to ball games anymore like they could when i was a kid nowhere near affordable you want an, an nfl game especially it's just crazy it's it's just too high yeah, and I think you're right. You're you're speaking really to you know a lot of folks out there that have families. Like, how do they afford? I I think about this with the NBA in particular and the Blazers. How does like a family of four afford to regularly go to an NBA game? You don't. You know, like you 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 look at the cost of tickets. You look at the cost of concessions. The cost of parking. It becomes very prohibitive for a lot of families. And I think the same has happened in college athletics. The same, of course, has happened in the NFL where you see ticket prices. And, you know, you look across sports and there's different studies, um, you know, that are uh, that are done across sports. And uh, Marquette University did this study just last year where they were looking at, you know, the cost of going to an NHL game versus an NBA game versus a Major League Baseball game. Even the Major League Baseball games were getting were getting high, like, you know, it was like a the cheapest ticket to go to a Red Sox game was sixty dollars. You know, the Yankees game you can't park for less than twenty nine dollars at a Yankees game. You can't get a beer at a Mets game for under eleven dollars. You know, you can't. So you start looking around, going, okay, when you start adding up, I got to park. We got to get tickets. You're sitting in nosebleed seats. You're maybe you're not parking. Maybe uh, you're eating before you go to the ballpark. And all of a sudden you're going, you know, this this is not an immersive experience. So I agree with Mike in Springfield. As much as TV is driving revenue in sports, I would think that some places that are having trouble drawing would go, hey, um, maybe we need to be a little more creative with some flex ticket pricing like an airline. Like, hey, if the stadium isn't full, you know, Mike and his family in Springfield – can get into a Major League Baseball game at, you know, a ticket is $14 instead of $60. And then as it fills up, the price goes up. I don't know. I'm just dynamic pricing. Let's go to Mark in Portland. 503-417-7575 is the number. Mark, go ahead. Hey, how you going? You, you know where I'm going with this one on the, the, the BCS, the Bulls. Yes. They have indoctrinated people to think the bowls mean something they john these the the vegas bowl has never really meant anything to anybody but like last year oregon state maybe florida fans a little bit i don't even think they were excited about it i wasn't really that excited about the game oregon was going to every other team sport on the planet has a real traditional playoff except for division one college football 16 team playoff all conference champions you can have these consolation bowl games they never have done well with ratings. That's why they force bands, schools to pay for bands to go to these games and all kinds of corruption that's going on. The athletic director, all these guys that are making money off of scam bowl games that nobody cares about. We want a real playoff in college football with, with all the conference champions, including like the Mountain West Conference, as many teams as possible, the more the did, better. Did it, does, 12, does 12 do it for you as, as long as the conference champion gets in almost all the time uh it's a lot better than what we have now but you're gonna you're gonna have you know some teams that are gonna feel they got shafted that that go under you know a team to go undefeated in a smaller conference i i want all the conference champions in college football to control their own destiny but we're never going to have a cinderella story in college football until we have a traditional playoff we're never going to have a 
you know, a, a Villanova 1985, a North Carolina State, Jimmy Valvano, those memorable moments for sports fans where a team like Boise State in 2009, Utah with Kyle Whittingham in 2008, undefeated. They were the only team that went undefeated that year. How do you tell an undefeated team they're not a champion? It's ridiculous. So or that they don't belong I'm, in the conversation. I can remember, uh, Mark, I can remember Fresno State coach Pat Hill telling me one time, he was talking about the BCS, he said, just throw us a bone. He said, we just want to be, we want a shot. Like, you know, and, and you do get that in the NCAA tournament, don't you? Yes, sir. It's, uh, it's, it's exciting to us. We, we know that, um, you know, we, we know in sports anything can happen. I mean, look at, at Boston right now. We know they still have a chance. I mean, the odds makers make it like two, 220 to make 100 bucks. They think it could happen, that they could come back. So, we want a fair and equal process for Oregon State, for Washington State, to, to have a dream season like 2000. The Beavers in a traditional playoff could have won the national title. And in 2001, Oregon, you could have had Oregon State and Oregon as back-to-back national champions in a real playoff. That was possible. We're never going to know in each year who the real champion is until you settle it on the field with all the conference champions. Yeah, there you go, Mark in Portland. He wants everybody involved. I want more of your phone calls on this topic. What are we fixing? And also, look, if you don't want to be that person, like primitive man who is focused on the negative, tell me what sports is getting right. Because I happen to like that the NFL looks at tweaking rules every year, and they do it very publicly. Uh, The NFL gets scheduling mostly right. You know, you can tell me what we're getting right in sports and what we're getting wrong in sports at 503-417-7575. What would you change in sports? What is what is sports getting right? What is sports getting wrong? You tell me. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I got a couple that I want to get off my chest both ways, but I want yours as well. We have uh, two lines open right now at 417-7575 in the 503 area code. But let's go out to Steve, who's in Aloha. Steve, uh, what are the, what are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? Where do you, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks, Sean. Well, th- these conference uh, tournaments just drive me crazy. I get it. We all want to see the eight seed upset the one seed. But you know, these kids play for three months. They play twenty-one games, let's say, in the in the in basketball. They're traveling all over and playing each other. And the, the team that won first place is, is the Pac-12 champion. But all of a sudden. Uh, the third seed upsets the first seed, and all of a sudden, then they're the automatic seed. They're the champions, what, for winning three games after the team that won the championship uh, during the year won 18 of the 21 games? Those things just drive me crazy because it makes no sense. It, it just it just makes no sense. I, I get it. It's for TV revenue. It's for those people who want to see that you know Cinderella team, and it's for people like to bet. You know, but it just it just drives me crazy. What what I do like though uh, is the um, you know the bowl games. Um, I like that middle tier, John, because you know frankly, um, you know I, I don't really care about the hula bowl or the uh, you know the weed eater bowl. Uh, you know, that, that has, you know, 200 fans in the stand. But I like that, that you know, when we get into late, you know, December and then, of course, into January, those are great games and, and it makes for great TV. So, uh, but that's my, my negative and my positive. Yeah, I think that you're, you're interested in saying, hey, what's the regular season for if the conference tournament is going to basically um, replace the regular season as far as who gets uh, to the uh, next level. Um, you know, I think the conference tournament is designed, A, to create revenue. 
Um, it's obvious that these conference tournaments, they sell them to their TV partners. The Pac-12 baseball tournament, they sold the championship game to ESPN2. They broadcast all of the regular season games to, I mean, the, uh, the, the, you know, the quarterfinals and the semifinals. They broadcast on the Pac-12 network. So there's revenue that is generated from that. I hope it goes to the baseball programs. Um, in the end, though, uh, I, it also, I think, gives you an opportunity. Mitch Canham, the Oregon State coach, said, you know, the tournament style feel to things. Even though you're a good regular season team, it kind of sharpens you and gets you ready for the regionals. And in the basketball tournament, maybe if you're a team that, you know, is like Arizona or UCLA or Oregon and has played really well in the regular season and you believe you're going to get into the NCAA tournament anyway, it gives you a little bit of urgency that you haven't had in several months. Uh, but um, I, I don't mind the call, and, and if it bothers Steve, I'm sure it bothers other people as well when they don't see teams that are the best regular season team advance. Uh, and, you know, but I, I also think, too, like, you know, everybody does it. We know why they do it. It's because of TV, and TV is driving so much of the narrative in college sports and in pro sports from kickoff times to conference expansion, it, it you know, it, look, it, it is here and it's here to stay. Sam's in Portland. Sam, welcome. John, you already know what I'm going to say, right? Go. I, I'm going I'm to talk about the lack of diversity in head coaching, athletic director positions, president leadership positions. I hope that someday, you know, before I leave this earth, that, that we'll see more a better system in place uh, of hiring and interviewing qualified minority women uh, candidates. And, and, and I'll, get, I'll put it to you this way, a little different spin. I want to see more people like Gloria Navarez than Larry Scott. Yeah. And not, you know, uh, white male versus woman of color, but... Um, Character-wise, you know, you know what I'm saying. And yeah, I know what you're saying. Yep. I'm so tired of every year we still fight this battle to just have um, women, people of color, coaches of color included, seriously included in these hiring, the interview, but then being hired. And over the last two years, uh, personally, I, I've lost. Two people, um, Dr. Merrick Norvell and O. St. Louis, who played at, at Oregon State and coached at Western when I was there, um, who, were, who fought this battle to, to have more diversity in, in college athletics in the coaching ranks. So if I could change anything, that's what I would change, and I would magic wand and, and have a more diverse system set up to include and hire people, more people like Gloria Navarez than, than Larry Scott. Yeah, and I think you're talking too. You're not just talking about diversity, but you're talking too about the background of the current, uh, you know, com commissioner in in college athletics is somebody who's got media world experience, right? George Kiafkoff was at NBC Universal and helped uh, found Hulu. Um, you know, Brent Yormark is yeah, from the media world. Um, you know, Kevin Warren who dove in from the big. To, from the NFL to the Big Ten, came to the NFL world, but he's got a background in in negotiating media contracts and thinking like an NFL executive, and it's a different animal. Larry Scott, you know, he, he had a tennis background, but I think um, I agree with you there. I also think it's really interesting, you know, there are 133 FBS teams in college football, 133. Stephen, without looking it up, 
how many black coaches among the 133 FBS teams? Mm, I'm going to go with uh, seven. Okay. It's higher than that. Seven would be 5%. Uh, it's 14 hmm. out of 133. It's about 10.5%. Um, there were 15 last season. And so half the players in college football are black. And so, it, you know, I don't need half the coaches to be black. But it jumps out at me when I see 133 programs and 14 black coaches. And I go, huh, like – What's going on there? Now, Deion Sanders, he was the star of the show, you know, as he went from Jackson State to Colorado. Um, but, you know, Purdue picked Ryan Walters, who was the uh, defensive coordinator at Illinois, to replace Jeff Brom. Um, so, I, you know, I think you get cases here and there, but I think you also have kind of a bigger question for college athletics. And I'm not a big, hey, I need a, uh, I don't need equality of outcome. I, but I do need to ask questions and offer an equality of opportunity for people of color. Like, I'm not big on let's make sure that, you know, 50% of the coaches in college football should be people of color. I'm not, I'm not in that camp. But I do, it does raise alarm bells and questions when I go 10%. And then I look at the population of black people in America, and I look at half the players in college football identifying themselves as black, and I go, there's a disconnect here. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. 503-417-7575. John's in Portland. John, you're up next. What do you got? John. John Trankhaze. Yeah. Yo. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Uh, what I find fascinating in college sports is what's going on in the ACC with what they're calling the Magnificent Seven. And it has to do with broadcast rights. And seven schools are trying to band together. And uh, what, what will this, how this, this will affect college football over the short term, long term, is really kind of fascinating. It's, they're trying to protect their, their rights uh, uh, in terms of uh, these schools adhering to the conference and not going on to bigger conference levels. And they're doing this uh, by uh, telling these schools that go to bigger conferences, uh, you're, you're going to forfeit your exclusivity rights in terms of broadcast. So that would be through 36. So if these schools leave the conference, their, their, their new conference will be able to broadcast their games, but the ACC also maintains the right to broadcast their games, which is going to hit them right in the pocket. Okay, so that that will have a, a short-term effect in protecting these schools. The long-term effect, though, is that we're going towards a super conference, okay? And yeah. uh, uh, ultimately, a super conference, which will exclude all the little guys, you know? So, yeah, but who are they going to play? Who are they going to play, John? That's that's my question. You know, when you look at the those who are predicting that, hey, we're going to go to a super conference that has forty teams. Okay, um, I do think you're going to get pushback from presidents and chancellors who go, hey, this isn't the spirit of college athletics. There'll have to be a decision made. Like, is this, you know, it flies in the face of higher education? Okay, that's one thing. Um, you know, the second thing is, who are they going to play? Like. 
if let's just say hypothetically we say we're going to call it the uh you know the college football super conference and you're going to take um 40 of the best teams and you're going to put them in you know and and suppose that you you know they do crossover games I I do think you'd get some pushback from teams who are going well we don't want to go on the road and play the other teams in the super conference and you know we have to have non-conference games so is Portland State and Sacramento State and UC Davis going to be flying around the country playing Alabama and Ohio State and Michigan? I don't know. Um, I think the money is is there for now with the Big Ten and the SEC. I think we're seeing some consolidation. I think we'll see further consolidation. But I'm not totally convinced that you know, 2029-2030 is the next time that these media rights deals will come up again. I'm not totally convinced that we're going to see – a super conference that cuts out Northwestern, Indiana, Purdue. I think that there may be some pushback within those, you know, the Big Ten and the SEC, Vanderbilt, Mississippi State, those who would not view themselves as a top 40 perennial program. They may have, they may push back a little bit on that, uh, you know, and they don't want to be left out either. So I kind of think that the expanded CFP, was the answer that the college presidents and chancellors gave to, hey, we don't like what we see with all this consolidation and this uncertainty. We want to stop it. Because ultimately, like as much as the ADs and the conference commissioners would probably love to have their conference become the super conference, these are still universities. And the presidents and chancellors, I think, are going to do some soul-searching in the next five to seven years where they're going to have to figure out, like, are they okay with this thing becoming a lot like the NFL, a Western division and Eastern division? I don't know. I don't blame John and Portland for thinking about it because I think a lot of other people are thinking about it. But I thought when the co- the presidents and chancellors voted to expand the playoff to 12, what they were really saying is slow your roll on all this consolidation. Um, because we, we, we still think of ourselves as colleges. And they do, you know, they, they do. I talked with these presidents and chancellors, and, and I think it's part of the problem. Like, they're a little bit out of touch with what it takes to uh, compete at the highest levels in sports. Some of them get it, some of them don't. Some of them are out in left field. Um, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting group of characters when you look at it. Sean's in Vancouver. Sean, what's on your mind? So I got uh, one thing that they get wrong and one thing they get right. The one thing they get wrong, the NFL, is Thursday night football. Man, that is, it is, it's not a good product. It got to the point last year where I stopped watching. I didn't care. I, I didn't care about the game. I didn't care about the two teams playing because they're just, they were, you know, it was Denver against, you know, somebody else. Two teams I could care less about, neither one of which were very good and none of which were really in a, uh, playoff contention, but what the NFL gets right is Sunday night football. Even if I miss no other, if I see no other game on Sunday, I'm going to watch Sunday night football. It's well produced. It's well put together. It's usually two good teams that are fun to watch, and you know I'm there for it every single week. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. You like what part of the country did you grow up in? Texas. They're doing it in Texas, aren't they? Football rules oh, yeah. in Texas. <laughs> well, Texas is, you know, on on uh, on Saturday, on Friday night it's high school. On 
Sunday night or Saturday night it's college, and on Sunday you go see Jesus, and it's that order. You know, it's, <laughs> it's Jesus, and then it's yeah. college football, and then it's high school football. So, appreciate you. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you. We were talking about this yesterday. We were talking about how it's generational, and it becomes part of what you do. All right, Punch It Audio is coming up. Uh, we're going to talk to Brandon Huffman, the national recruiting editor at 24-7 Sports uh, at, at 4 o'clock. I want you here for it. We're going to talk about Aiden Childs and uh, what Oregon and Oregon State are, are doing that's different in recruiting. Leave it here. I got a, a bit minor scandal in the uh, NBA where you've got a – Official referee Eric Lewis, who uh, who may or may not have had a uh, burner account on Twitter, but he's been outed, outed by some people, some internet sleuths, who have determined that he may have had an, a Twitter burner account. Uh, we'll talk about it in the 4 o'clock hour, but Stephen, do you think it's poor form for a athlete, a referee, a sports executive. We had a case of an NBA general manager who had a burner account. I can tell you I've suspected at different occasions that that uh, some of the people I've been critical of have burner accounts. Do you think it's poor form, or is that kind of do, to be expected? Uh, I think it's to be expected, uh, especially nowadays. It's so easy just to get a, a second account. And, you know, people that say they're not aware, like athletes that say they're not aware of what's being talked about, them, they're aware. Like, they know what they're talking about, and so – I do feel like it's natural to say, you know, you hear something about yourself and you want to respond and you want to defend yourself, but it's so easy to do it under this, you know, under an alias. So I think it's expected that people, a lot of athletes probably have burner accounts uh, that just haven't been caught yet. Yeah, I think there's a fair bit of that out there probably. Um, we're going to play some punch and audio. We'll deal with uh, the officiating uh, scandal, if we can call it that, conundrum. Uh, later in the program, but uh, we've got great sound today. Punch it audio, the best sound from all around. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Chris Mannix talking about the Denver Nuggets. He was on the Rich Eisen show today. Uh, you know, he's talking about uh, the Nuggets and why nobody else talks about the Nuggets. Punch it. The card the Nuggets can play is nobody talks about us. Nobody, you know, sp spends airtime discussing us, column inches writing about us. Because, frankly, the Nuggets aren't very interesting. Like, Nikola Jokic is arguably the best player in the game right now. But he's not someone that does a lot of interviews outside of the NBA-mandated stuff. He's, you're not going to see a lot of profiles on Nikola Jokic. Jamal Murray, great player, not especially interesting. Michael Porter Jr., excellent player, not especially interesting, at least not compared to what we have at the bottom of the playoff bracket, where you've got drama in Los Angeles almost weekly. You've got the Suns. Can they succeed in this first year with Kevin Durant? The Warriors, all their dysfunction this year. The Clippers, can they get it together? The Nuggets' problem is they're not respected. They're just not talked about. People just don't find them as interesting as some of the teams on the bottom half of the bracket. Yeah, it's, it's true. We tend to gravitate. Again, off the top of the show today, I was talking about why we focus on negative versus positive. We tend to gravitate towards the dramatic 
I'm not going to say interesting, but the dramatic in general. Where are the headlines? Ooh, is LeBron going to retire? What are the headlines? You know, where Aaron Rodgers and is he causing unrest with the Green Bay Packers? And uh, and you know, I think you're looking uh, at the Denver Nuggets going. They're really good. They're mostly not dramatic. I think the most, you know, probably the the most tumultuous thing with them is Mike Malone, their coach, sort of going through the Western Conference Finals saying, hey, nobody's talking about that. Um, so I think uh, I think you have to uh, I think you have to look at that and ask yourself, are they that good, that efficient, that locked in that, you know, it doesn't doesn't move the needle i mean steven do you agree with maddox i just i just hate it because the nuggets are awesome and nicole Jokic is doing stuff that we've never seen before but since they don't hate each other nba national nba writers aren't going to talk about them they're not going to write about them like it doesn't make sense to me i i just hate the fact that we've gone from stuff that's on the court to now more importantly what's off the court and people love the trade machine and i i wish the trade machine go away i i absolutely hate seeing fake trades and trade proposals by fans because they're none of them happen when we have no idea what's going to happen we can speculate and then it just it just goes to everything off the court at some point we're not even going to play games it's just going to be simulations and we're going to say oh this team has the best team on paper we're, they win it all we don't have to play it and so like that that comment by manix just it, it makes me mad because it's like the nuggets deserve to be talked about they just crush the lakers yet we want to talk about the lakers yeah, we want to talk about the Sun. No, talk about the Nuggets who are probably going to win the NBA championship. Like, I just, I don't know. I just hate it, man. I, I just wish it was more on the court, and that's what we're talking about more than just off-the-court drama. Just because they don't like each other doesn't mean we can't talk about them. Yeah, and I think sometimes, like, you know, the San Antonio Spurs were a little vanilla at times during their during their run to multiple championships with Tim Duncan and David Robinson and uh, Mono Ginobili and Tony Parker. And, you know, I think... Sometimes squeaky wheel, problematic franchise. Giannis going out early in the playoffs, that gets the attention. Do you think it's you, worse yeah. in the NBA than it is any other sport? Feels like the, it feels a little more TMZ like in that in in the NBA, and I don't know why that is. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe it's, it just might come back to like AAU culture, which we've talked about numerous times. Like it's just all about them. I don't know, but I, that's as an NBA fan, like I hate that stuff. I hate that it's more. That's what people think about the NBA is the drama and off-the-court stuff than on-the-court. Because I love the on-the-court product. Like, it's a great product. They're really talented players. We don't talk about it. Yeah, maybe, perhaps. You do get some of it in the NFL, though. Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, the news cycle. I think there's a combination of things there. Gilbert Arenas uh, talking about John Morant, speaking of troubles. What advice would Arenas give Morant? Punch him. Even though it's not going to be taken because he's 23 on top of the world, um, the, the, the advice is understand your surroundings. Um Put people around you who have the same interest, and that interest is protecting your brand. Even if it's not your interest, make it theirs. Um, so you need people around you that's willing to tell you no, that's willing to, hey, you, 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 you've taken too many shots. Put it down, right? It's, it's 1 o'clock in the club. We have to leave. You, you need people around you that's willing to, to be your conscience, right? Because obviously at the age you are, just being realistic, 23, went to school two years, all the money in the world, the face of this, the face of that, you're more like in your mind, God-like. So with that being said, you need 
people around you that can think like a real human and that's going to protect you until you're old enough to really start thinking. I think it's good advice. And I think, you know, NBA players who who have had troubles but have them in the rearview mirror, I think are in a unique position in with a situation like John Morant because I do think you see players who go, hey, man, I, I wish I knew then what I know now. And they have a chance to impart that on a an athlete like John Morant who has struggled. I think it's good advice. Robert Sala, the coach of the Jets, believes in his team. The New York Jets is one of six or eight teams that could win a championship. Is he saying it out loud? Punch it. Would love to go 17-0 and and cruise through the playoffs and win a championship, but you're not going to be able to unless you focus on the moment. So uh, acknowledge the noise, acknowledge the positivity, be excited about it because, you know, there's um, – Again, my opinion, I think 32 teams stand in front of their teams, or 32 coaches stand in front of their teams every year to talk about winning a championship. And then realistically, there's maybe six or eight teams that have an actual chance to do it. And I do think we are one of those teams. But none of it matters unless we do it. We take care of it today. Yeah, I, I guess he's saying it. I don't, mind it? Him, I don't mind him saying it. I think some coaches are afraid to say it. Maybe he learns from this. I don't know. But I, I don't mind him saying it. He certainly has the quarterback. I've been reading some of the stories about Aaron Rodgers being in Jets camp. Everybody's talking about how uh, professional he is and how mature he is and how it really uh, has helped. Um, it really has helped the other players on the roster. And I think there's a whole bunch of Aaron Rodgers stories that will circulate between now and the start of the season that are going to be about his introduction. But the truth is, Aaron Rodgers is brought to New York and brought to the Jets to help them compete for a Super Bowl and a championship. That is what it is about. And I guess Robert Sala is going, hey, that's what it's about. We're one of six or eight teams, but we need to put it together. Interesting. Leave it here. We're going to talk to Brandon Huffman about recruiting coming up. I want you here for it. You got the BFT. I'll bet you it's more unusual for a pro athlete or an executive to not have a burner account than to have a burner account. We've seen a case of an NBA general manager, now maybe a case of an NBA referee, and I'm going, well, I bet all the referees have burner accounts. I don't know. I have friends who say they're not on Twitter that are in executive and professional positions, but then they know everything that's going on on Twitter. You think that more don't have one? No, I think more do have. I, I think there's a whole bunch of people. I'd be surprised, you know, I'd be more surprised that, that if somebody told me, hey, uh, an NBA general manager who doesn't have a real Twitter account, uh, that I'd be surprised if those people do not have burner accounts. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think, I mean, I would be surprised if it's like not 75% of these general managers have burner accounts. I think you're probably right. It's Brandon good, Huffman. It's a good way to yeah. get false information out there, too. Yeah. Or maybe they just, they're, you know, they watch. They're twatchers, so to speak. Brandon Huffman, he's the national recruiting editor at 24-7 Sports. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. He's a man of the world. He's in the sunshine today. Where are you today? I am sitting in my office just outside Seattle with the sun doing what it does best around this time, blinding me, coming to the window, and I don't care that it's blinding me. <laughs> I like that. 
I like that. Nice. I'm not one of those people either, Brandon, and I'm not one of those people that complains when it gets warm. Everybody's going, it's too hot. It's too hot too soon. It's not summer yet. I'm like, no. We can't complain about the rain and then turn around and complain about the heat. I'm Southern California, born and bred, and trust me, it can never get too hot, but it can get too cold. That I will complain about. Brandon, uh, I want to talk about Aiden Childs to start with, and this is a kid you've seen throughout high school. You've seen him at camps and seven-on-seven tournaments and watched him up close, and Oregon State's got him. He's a freshman there. He's he's uh, enrolled early. He may get some run here in fall camp for for some real playing time. Um, what did what have you seen of Aiden Childs? You know, it's interesting. I actually went to college with his high school coach, and my brother was a teammate of his high school coach as well. And I remember him telling me about it about two years ago, saying, "Hey, I got this kid at the time. His only offer was Houston Baptist." And that was largely because the the head coach at Houston Baptist was his high school coach's college coach. So at that time, I'm like, hey, you know, this kid's kind of got something. He's better than Houston Baptist, which is an FCS thing. This kid's at least a Mountain West kid. Then about a year ago, I saw him at a seven-on-seven tournament where he took a team that was not really that talented to the championship game. And he went because he didn't even get invited to the Under Armour camp in Southern California. He only had a Mountain West offer in addition to Houston Baptist. Two months later, he's the MVP at the Under Armour camp. His, like, his recruitment just blows up. And then you just saw his stock continue to rise. And this is a kid in a, in a position where a lot of these guys are single holdbacks, double holdbacks. He was young for his class, and he was overshadowed by Malachi Nelson, overshadowed by Nika Yamalieva. And, yeah, I've compared it to C.J. Stroud. He was overshadowed by D.J. Uyangalele uh, and Bryce Young and ended up becoming the second quarterback pick. I think Aiden Child is going to have a similar arc where after being overshadowed for much of his high school career, you're going to see what a star he is in his time at, call, at Oregon State. Give me an idea because I think one of the concerns that coaches, not just at Oregon State but nationally have with young players is that if they don't play them right away, maybe Dante Moore at UCLA is a different case, but if they don't play them right away, they, they risk losing them in the transfer portal by the time they're a sophomore. How big of a concern is that, you know, as you see kids talking about how fast they want it to happen? You know, it's something that every college coach has to take into consideration when they're recruiting a high-caliber quarterback. But this is also a relationship that when they did recruit him, when Oregon State did get his commitment – Aiden was still a three-star. He wasn't an elite quarterback. He, were, he wasn't uh, you know, considered one of the elite quarterbacks. He wasn't a Dante Moore or a Nico or a Malachi Nelson where he had his pick where you had to keep him happy. Aiden Childs was going to Oregon State with the understanding that they might have a returning starter this year. Uh, and this is before DJ transferred in, but he also wasn't rushing himself. He also didn't feel like, hey, I need to go somewhere and I need to play right away. This is a kid that really had to wait until his junior year of high school to be the guy. So, Waiting and patience is something that has kind of made him what the quarterback he is. He didn't even get invited to the All-American Bowl until the last quarterback spot opened up as a result of an injury, and he goes down there and was probably the second-best quarterback there the whole week. So he's kind of used to waiting and just waiting his turn and then quietly getting better so that way when he is turned loose, he can be the guy. So even with DJ coming in, you know, he does it with the understanding like, hey, I can go in. There's not going to be the expectation on me to play right away. But if I am getting asked to play right away, I will be ready. And I think that's the one thing when you don't have to rush a kid, you can kind of bring him along a little bit slower, but make sure he's ready just without the immediate pressure and expectation. But I've seen Aiden Childs wait, and when he's waited his turn and been turned loose, 
that's when he's really flourished. Give me an idea in that conversation where, you know, the player, the coach, the coaching staff, players, parents, high school coach, in that conversation, you know, are are parents and families willing to be patient in your mind? Or do you hear kind of a chorus of, you know, we want to go somewhere where we're going to be able to play right away happening in football? I think basketball might be different. No, I, I think it's funny how you say we, because that's how a lot of these families and, and kind of the people involved in a lot of the recruitments are. This is a we thing. This isn't a him thing. This isn't just the quarterback that you're recruiting. You're recruiting the whole package. You're getting mom and dad. You're getting the, the quarterback trainer. You're getting the, the other trainers, the high school coaches, the seven-on-seven coaches. You're getting the whole package, and a lot of coaches are turned off by that. And there's a lot of coaches that – understand that's a game you have to play but then don't know what to do when they have to when they're confronted by you told us we were going to play early well there's only one person that's going to play early it's not all of you it's him and a lot of times it's not even the kid that wants to leave it's everybody around him that wants him to leave because they perceive that they've been slighted that he's not playing and this is one of those recruitments where he wasn't at you know you look at Aiden Shaw's recruitment he wasn't at a big glamour school at Downey High School he was playing for a very humble high school coach who was a small college player of the year you know his, his mom was very involved in in the recruiting process but not to the extent where she was a detriment she just was asking a lot of questions because it was so new to her and I think that that is why they found such a great match with Oregon State and also I think why Oregon State really targeted him as the guy because there wasn't the need to make promises there wasn't the need to guarantee he's going to be playing as a true freshman all the or maybe even starting it was a hey this is how our process works and we'd love you to be a part of it. And there's that mutual trust on both sides, but not a lot of coaches are very good at that. And, you know, you look at the school that Jonathan Smith came from at Washington, he was kind of burned, uh, or not he was, Chris Peterson was kind of burned by making the guarantees to Jacob Easton when he transferred in from Georgia and then losing Jay Kaner. Jacob Easton didn't have great success. Jay Kaner ends up a third-round draft pick by virtue of leaving to go to Fresno State, and everything worked out handsomely for him. That's the danger with sometimes making some promises that you don't necessarily need to make. Chris Peterson's interesting to me, and, and you know him. You've talked with him often. I think we've had him on this show twice, but I don't have a sense of why he walked away. Do you think it was related to the complicated world and the way recruiting was changing and it's less about teaching or was it burnout? What's the sense you got in talking to Peterson over the years? I think there was a slight bit of burnout, but I think it was heavily slanted towards he did not want to do what recruiting was becoming. He did not want to have to deal with the direction that recruiting was going. And remember, he announced his retirement a year and a half before NIL even went into effect, but it's almost like he foresaw that becoming a bigger part of the recruiting cycle. And you started to see you know, what was happening in college football and across the country with more promises being made to schools, with, you know, more expectations from the players. If I'm going to come to your school, what are you going to give me besides the scholarship and, you know, guaranteed playing time? There was a want for more. And I just think that he was a guy who, in a sense, was a little bit of an old school traditionalist, like, hey, your scholarship should be enough for you. You should want to come here and play and represent this university play major college football to put yourself in a position to play professionally and with more and more college football programs looking like kind of many professional operations i don't think he wanted to make that transition and i think with stanford's job opening up last year them 
certainly kicking the tires there. And at a school that there wasn't going to be the expectation to change their ways, he was still like, yep, I'm good. I'm fine sitting on the sidelines and just watching college football as it is. Maybe he becomes the first commissioner of college football if there ever is one. But I think he got out just in time. And I just don't see with the way college football is changing him returning anytime soon. We're talking to Brandon Huffman. He is the national recruiting editor, 24-7 Sports. Um, I've seen some schools, Ohio State probably doing this really well, that are selling more than just football. Like We've always seen schools sell academics, but Ohio State kind of selling the idea that, hey, they can connect you with their network of people. And I know Oregon, Oregon State, and some others have done this. But is that effective? Do, you, do kids care about... Hey, uh, it's not just going to school. It's not just playing in a conference. It's not just playing time and winning. But you can network with alumni if you go to Ohio State, or you can network at Stanford that way. Is that an effective tool that they use, or is it just part of hey, when we recruit, we we're, we're going to recruit in every possible way we can? Yeah, I think it's more the latter because the reality is with the portal becoming as rampant as it is you're not really going to have those those connections available to you if you transfer away from a school. So a school might do that in a selling point to, hey, get here, you're going to have the, the, the great connections, the alumni base. I mean, USC's been selling that for years, right, the Trojan family, where, you know, you, you're going to be able to find jobs. But now with guys coming and going into the portal as quickly as they got there, that's not the selling point that these kids are interested in. Now it's not, it's not hard to see that, the way college football is, it's what can you do for me now? I'm not concerned about what you're going to do for me in five years, what you're going to do for me in 20 years, the Stanford idea, the 40-year decision, not the four-year decision. Yeah, Stanford's still probably going to get the majority of those kids being the 40-year decision, but the majority of college football players are like, I don't care what's going to happen when I'm 30 or 35. What are you going to do for me when I'm 18 or 19 or 20? How are you going to help me build my brand right now? And so that's another thing that Ohio State can sell, but it's easy to sell when you've got six round, first round draft picks or seven first round draft picks projected like they do next year. You're a frequent playoff team. And you also have your head coach getting out there and getting a raw number saying, you need $12 million now to put together a recruiting class. He's not coming up with a $12 million number just randomly. That was as much of a call to arms to get his boosters and his collective in gear so that they can compete with a lot of these schools. That's what Ohio State's really selling. That's what Ohio State and all the other college football teams are really selling. They're, They're trying to add the alumni to take the pressure off the collective of say or the, the the pressure off themselves to say our collectives are running teams. But at the end of the day, teams that are signing the best classes, that are getting the best transfers, they're the ones that have pretty active collectives and are helping these guys on the front end. Brandon Huffman is with us. Um, you know, I, I know I've asked you this on the podcast uh, that we did with John Wilner the other day, but I want you to maybe help our listeners understand, you know, within the Pac-12 conference, is all recruiting the same, or is Oregon doing something differently? And I'm looking at the guys that they are signing and going, gosh, they're all over the country. It's What they're doing is they're capitalizing on the national brand that they have become in the last 10 to 12 years. I mean, yes, you can think back to you know when Joey Harrington's banner hung in Times Square, but the high school kids, the seniors right now, they were five years before they were even born at that point. So they don't know the national brand, but they remember the Marcus Mariota year. My son is a, you know, an average high school football player. He's a 2024 class. The first year he really started getting into college football was 2012, 2013. So most seniors in high school, most juniors in high school to be in football 
when they started really watching college football in their later elementary years, they watched Marcus Mariota win a Heisman. They saw Oregon play for a national championship. They've seen Justin Herbert win a Rose Bowl and now flourish in the NFL. So they've got this national brand. And when they don't have a fertile recruiting ground in their backyard, like a lot of the other states in the Pac-12 do, they can recruit nationally. Then you bring in a coach who came from Georgia, who came from recruiting that Southeast and, and came from building a national championship squad defensively from those Southern ties. And you have coaches that have had experience all over the country. You're going to tap into those regions. And that's no surprise why you see them go in to an Oklahoma to get as a Davian Sands, why they're able to go, you know, into Pennsylvania for recruits, why they're able to go into Texas into the Southeast, because they've got coaches that have come from all over the country and they are a national brand. It's not Oregon's on the other side of the country. It's Oregon's a school that's putting guys in the league. They're playing in big-time games. They're playing against big-time opponents. They're playing on television week after week. They've got the Nike connection. But it's all of those things, and Oregon is really knowing how to capitalize on all those things. Now, Brandon, I'm not going to hold you responsible if, you know, because we're just going to spitball here. But I keep hearing about NIL deals, and I hear – you know, at first it was like Cam Ward. I know he got $90,000 package from Washington State. And then we see Michael Penix Jr. go back to Washington. We see Bo Nix at Oregon. And, and, I, and I think to myself, what could that be worth? And I don't really have a grasp of what those guys are getting. Do you have a range when it comes to a lockdown corner, a defensive tackle, a star quarterback? Are we talking $100,000, $500,000, a million dollars? You know, what? What is an NIL deal worth in that world? You know, it, it kind of mirrors what the NFL is doing. And you're seeing the elite quarterbacks are commanding bigger NIL deals. They're going to be the face of your program. They're going to sell the most jerseys. They're going to be the ones that you want at the local Dodge dealership to sign autographs and take pictures for a couple hours. But then you're seeing pass rushers, left tackles, lockdown cover corners, they're probably in that next tier of compensation in NIL packages. And much like the NFL, where the running back position has been devalued, where you're not seeing as many first-round draft picks at running back, running backs aren't getting the NIL deals that receivers are getting, that tight ends are even getting, which it's funny when you look back 10, 15 years ago and you think about some of the great players in college football in the NFL, they were running backs. Now that position's been devalued. So the NIL deals are going to the faces of the program, those quarterbacks, those lockdown corners, those franchise left tackles. Thank you, you know, the blind side for making that position that much more valuable. Those elite pass rushers. And there's kind of becoming a, a clear case of the haves and the have-nots positionally of what these guys are making. But then there's a lot of incentive if you're a returning quarterback who could go to the NFL. You might be a third-round pick. You might be a fourth or fifth-round pick. And you might not get the guaranteed contract depending on where you're slot. But you can come back get one more year of glory and maybe you put your stock a little higher, but that NIL deal you're coming back to college for is going to be worth more than being the quarterback, maybe the scout team quarterback on a team you got drafted in the fifth round. So you're seeing that there's some schools that they're not playing the NIL game on the signing on the recruiting side of it. They're playing it on the, you produce for our program for three or four years. We want to keep you for one more year. So we're going to give you the NIL, the NIL, then you're seeing the other schools that are making it very clear. Hey, we've got such a talent depletion here. We're going to give all of the recruits this great NIL package to get them here. And then hopefully the overwhelming talent, even our coaches can't screw that up. Brandon, uh, you know, the Jonathan Smith uh, approach with his coaching staff has largely been, you know, keep the coaching staff together. 
um, retention very important to that staff. I'm curious from your vantage point, is there a downside to that? Do you need new ideas? Do you need young assistants when it comes to recruiting? And is there any danger in retaining your staff for four, five, six, seven years? No, because I think if you look at the program in the Pac-12 that's been the most consistent since the Pac-12 expanded to 12 teams, it's the University of Utah. And where has there been probably the least amount of turnover in recent years? It's been at the University of Utah. You're seeing those coaches being courted. I mean, we, we saw Marcus Freeman in Notre Dame make this huge effort to try to woo Andy Ludwig away from Utah, purposely going to a uh, Notre Dame hockey game so he could be on the Jumbotron, and then Andy Ludwig decided to stay at Utah. And why is Utah as good as they are now? Because there's a consistency in the coaching staff. There's a consistency in a head coach who's been there for 18 years and doesn't show any signs of either slowing down or leaving. But you're also seeing very little turnover in his assistant coaches. When a coach is recruiting a kid and he says, I'm going to be here for the next four or five years, Utah has shown a track record that that coach is going to be there for the next four or five years. And you have coaches at Oregon State, at Trent Bray, a defensive coordinator, you know, who may someday be the next head coach at Oregon State, but it might not be for 15 or 20 years because Jonathan Smith could be there for the next 15 to 20 years. But he's an Oregon State alum. He's a coach's kid himself. He understands, like, continuity helps. You get a guy like Jim Mahalchik who's been in the NFL, who's been around the Pac-12, but he's a Northwest guy. He played at Washington State. He's from the state of Washington. He's close to, to the rivers and the streams and the mountains like he wants to be. He's on the back end of his coaching career, but he's showing those slides of slowing down, and you're seeing them have one of the best offensive lines. And so when you have that consistency, you're not losing guys to a lot of lateral moves. When you're losing coaches, a lot of those guys are leaving for the NFL, like a Michael Petrie did. And they're able to keep a good chunk of those coaches happy and staying there. And I think when you have that consistency in your program and your coaching staff, your program benefits from that. And I think Oregon State's entering into a very exciting period if you're an Oregon State fan of just being one of that consistent teams that you're always going to be able to count and go into a ball and compete for some conference championships. All right, Brandon, I really appreciate your time. Follow him on Twitter. Read him at 24-7 Sports. Enjoy the sunshine, my friend. I will. I'm going to go put my sunglasses on in my office just as a result of that. There you go. That's what I need. I need a, uh, I need a window that faces the sunshine in this studio. Uh, the sunshine, it's always its always shining in this studio. What am I talking about? I think it's really an interesting conversation because I think on one hand, I see it as a huge positive that you get retention. Um, you know, remember Oregon's coaching staff for years under Rich Brooks, Mike Bellotti, and then later Chip Kelly, Mark Helfrich, the same assistant coaches, 28 years. It was celebrated as, hey, this is great. But I talked to Mike Bellotti a couple few weeks ago, and he said, you know, yeah, you, you still need some good – ideas which which he got by sort of rotating characters in and out of the offensive coordinator position he went from Andy Ludwig and Gary Croton to Chip Kelly and he found something there all right coming up uh, we'll talk more about the burner account that everybody's talking about is it really a burner account leave it here you got the BFT there are times when I feel like my children are more evolved than I am is that a bad thing for me to say? Am I a bad dad if I say that out loud? And I mean by what I mean by that is like my my twenty year old who's in college, she is a um she grew up with Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and whatever else uh social media wise that the rest of us sort of inherited and had to understand 
And because she grew up with it, I think there are certain facets of social media that she understands like inherently better than than I than I do naturally, right? There, I didn't have a cell phone at her age. I didn't get a cell phone until I was like 28 years old. And the cell phone I got, I didn't get on. I couldn't get on the internet. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. It was just a phone, and it cost me like 75 cents a minute to call somebody. It was a brick, and and uh, I can remember going off to cover the Big Ten conference in 1998, 1999. I'd be driving around the Midwest using GPS or a map, and I think to myself now, I like I didn't have the ability to just punch in an address and and drive there uh, in my you know with my car. I had to uh, think about where I was going and where I was going to stay, and it was a little more complex, but also it was simpler. And I only bring this up because we have this story today about Eric Martin, NBA official, who may or may not have had a burner account. And according to the Internet sleuths who are out there who track such things, they just seem to notice, and I watched this, uh, I think 95.7 in the Bay Area, uh, KMBR or whatever it's called in the Bay Area, is uh, whatever it's called now, um, Did is the first place I saw it, and... And uh, the first place that I kind of started looking at it, and what ha- what they were reporting and showing was that you know there seemed to be a Twitter account that was very defensive about the NBA officiating, and in particular Eric Martin, NBA official, and and uh, you know some people on Twitter started to note it, and then started calling out Eric Martin and saying how long before the Twitter account gets deleted, and before it could be deleted, somebody did sort of screen record all of the replies and mentions. And I went through and I wasted about four minutes of my life watching that. And and it was, it did appear to be either Eric Martin or somebody who was advocating strongly on his behalf and on behalf of the officials in the NBA. And sort of clapping back at a lot of the noise on social media. And I have to think it would be really difficult to be an NBA general manager to be, uh, or uh, let's just say a professional sports general manager or a coach or even a player who had to be in the position of chronically reading criticism of yourself and going, I can't speak back because it's going to be a bad look if I clap back. And also NBA officials who don't have social media watching social media and going, I wish I had an opportunity to kind of advocate on behalf of myself and other NBA officials and tell people what I know and explain how wrong people are and how these false narratives are being perpetuated. And, you know, some of this goes back to the fact that some people have thick skin and some don't. Like, I had a friend the other day. I wrote a column about Damian Lillard. I wrote a column that basically, you know, you know my viewpoint on that. I don't believe the Blazers should mortgage their future, the number three draft pick, Anthony Simons, uh, you know, Shaden Sharp, in exchange for trying to find a serviceable player to stick alongside Lillard that doesn't make an impact. Like, you tell me that the Blazers are going to have a shot to compete for a championship, and I'm listening. But if you're telling me they're making a move and mortgaging their future so they can have a shot to be a playoff team 
I'm not doing that. And I told the barista today at Starbucks, who I was talking about this very topic, he asked me, what, what should the Blazers do with the pick? And I told the barista, I said, you do not mortgage your future for a guy who's going to be here for at most three or four more seasons, at most. 33 years old this summer. And it's not personal. It's just not logical to me to give up the number three pick unless you get a player in return who's going to move the needle in a way that makes it a no-brainer. Like, I'm talking about it. some other team has to be stupid to in order for me to listen to a trade for the number three pick. I'm making the pick because the number three pick should be part of your franchise plan, ideally, five, seven, ten years from now. So I'm not mortgaging that just to be a playoff team. You tell me I can compete better. But I have a friend who reaches out to me and says, hey, you know, you got some Blazer fans mad at you on Twitter. And A, I don't care. Okay? And I'm over that long ago. I don't care if you're mad. I don't care if you're happy. It does not validate me or invalidate me or make me feel good or make me feel bad or brighten my day or ruin my day if you agree or disagree with me. I just I think you're entitled for your with your opinion. Here's what I think. And I probably learned that Long ago, I was covering Indiana basketball in Indiana. And I was writing critically what I thought about Bobby Knight. And the Indiana fans were like, we're not used to this outsider telling us what to do. And then what did I do after that? Uh, I lived in Tallahassee. Bobby Bowden was there. I went to cover Jerry Tarkanian in Fresno State and as a columnist. And, you know, Tark was running that town. People were like, how dare you? How dare you criticize the native son of the Central Valley of California? How dare you? No matter if I was right or wrong. And at some point, you just kind of go, it's just white noise, that what you get in return. But I can imagine if an NBA official or a general manager isn't kind of formally conditioned in that role, that it would be very difficult for those individuals to hear the criticism, and especially difficult if they felt like the public doesn't understand us Remember, NBA officials are not allowed to make comment about their calls, about protocols. They're not allowed to, you know, sometimes they'll do a pool reporter who will visit the locker room. The official will give a statement, but they don't want, like, the officials running around making comment. Like, it would be chaotic. And so the officials probably feel muted. It's part of the job, but they feel muted. And so I would not be surprised if multiple NBA officials, Major League Baseball umpires, NFL referees, Pac-12 officials. Hell, I wrote the column today. This is a great example. I wrote a column today about Pac-12 baseball at johnconzano.com. Take a look at the comment section. Somebody drifted in there who claims to be a friend of a Pac-12 official who says, hey, there are good officials out there and starts advocating pretty hard inside the comment section for, hey, you know, the Pac-12 officials aren't all bad. And uh, I don't know. I read a couple of few of the comments as I was going through because I do reply to the comments in there. And I thought to myself, huh, that's either a Pac-12 official or it's somebody who knows a Pac-12 official well. And I feel the same about this Eric Martin Twitter account. It's either him or it's somebody who knows him well and knows officiating well enough to comment about it. And sure enough, what happened? The account was deleted. It was wiped. It's gone. NBA very likely investigating behind the scenes, probably asking Eric Martin, is this you? Produce your phone. Produce your IP address. We're going to, you know, the, the NBA, they've got 
former FBI and CIA agents, all the leagues do, working for them in investigative capacities, they will get to the bottom of this in the same way that they have previously got to the bottom of other officials who had Twitter accounts. Um, I think it, you know, I would love to hear from the officials. I understand why the leagues don't let them talk. I would love to hear from general managers, and they do talk sometimes in formal press settings, but I kind of liked when, you know, the, the, we had the day of having some, like, you know, having some of the, uh, of some of the general managers in the league with Twitter accounts who would openly kind of just tell us what they were thinking. And, of course, we have a case of a general manager who was on his way to China who tweeted what he was thinking, got himself in hot water not that long ago. Um, I just think it would surprise me if some of these individuals, or most of the individuals, didn't have some kind of burner account where they were watching. And um, I have friends who work in the legal world, in the court system, in law enforcement, who tell me they don't have social media, but they always know what's going on on social media. And I guarantee you they're in there mixing it up with some fake handle, checking out what's going on. I don't. I don't understand. Here's another thing I don't understand about social media. And again, I'll go back to my children know more than I do. My kids, um, especially the 20-year-old, she's she's deft on Instagram. Okay, she's good. She's so good that she's got companies that you know seek her out and say, "Hey, help us understand how to how to engage with other people." They've hired her. This is a, this is a side hustle that she has in college. I didn't know anything about it. She, she one day we got a note from her and she said, "Hey, you're gonna get a delivery of 10 pounds of coffee." She doesn't even drink coffee. I'm like, we're getting a delivery of coffee? She says, 10 pounds of coffee are coming to the house. And I said, okay, what am I supposed to do with this coffee? She says, you know, can you drop it off to me next time you're coming up and, and going to a football game at Oregon State? She goes to Oregon State. And I said, okay, I'll bring you the coffee. And I said to her, what are you doing with the coffee? And she says, oh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, helping the coffee company run their Instagram account. She's getting paid by it. Now, she didn't tell me this probably because – she didn't want me to offset that money from what I give her monthly. I'm going to guess that's what it was really about. But she's working for several businesses in that capacity. And I think that kids her age have just have a better grasp, a better understanding of, you know, how to engage, how to connect, how to reach, how to grow audience. You know, the rest of us are kind of all have had to learn that. They have grown up with it. I just I, – I, I don't necessarily have a problem if – an NBA general manager, and I suspect general managers of the past in Portland have had burner accounts. I just, you know, I've got an inkling. Let's just say that. I suspect they've had burner accounts, and I'm okay with that. I think they should be entitled to uh, hear what people are saying about them. I'm glad they, they don't want to be out of touch. I'm even okay if an umpire or an official has an account. What I don't want is I don't want them using it to manipulate the public or, you know, I think they should mostly be there for the discourse and for and to see what's being said. Although, I got to tell you, um, sometimes there's nothing to see. Sometimes it just makes you dumber. Stephen, you've, uh, you've observed this kind of behavior in the wild. Kevin Durant had a burner account, got caught in that. If Eric Martin has a burner account, is there a, is there a danger in an official having a burner account? I don't know. I don't problem. I don't think there's a problem. 
Um, because I will say, like, the officials, they aren't great in the NBA, but they get a worse rap than they should. They get yeah. blamed for a lot of things. They get blamed that they're rigging games and they're betting on games, and none of that is true. Tim Donaghy ruined all of it. And so hmm. I think for Eric Lewis, like, he probably hears that, and then there's these calls that are made, and then people go back on Twitter and they go through every single call that is made and one bad call, and then he wants to defend himself because he feels like, you know what, I'm doing the best I can. I'm not as bad as you think I am. You would be way worse than I am out there, so I'm going to defend myself. So I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I think it's a problem that he's getting caught, and the fact that, like, if you're going to go about it right, you got, you can't be using the names, right? Like, he kept writing Eric Lewis as you know, as that Twitter account, that that's a real giveaway. Like you can't be that specific when you do it. He wasn't very good about no, it. No, he wasn't very good at his burner account. Like I don't think it's a problem because I do think like it's they uh, people are should be able to defend themselves, but referees can't do that. But the, yeah, the league doesn't want yeah, that. The league they don't can't want have anybody that. talking. And so I think that they, it is okay for them to get their thoughts out in a different matter if no one notices them. I I just do you think like. But you're listening, like Twitter, you know, I, I, I looked at a study one time, and it was 70% of the tweets on Twitter are created by about 20% of the users, meaning it really is the definition of a vocal minority. Very vocal, but not a reflection of the public. And also, if you're on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you are often getting fed by your algorithm and by the fact that you choose followers uh, on those accounts. You're getting fed what you want to hear, not just what you're interested in. And so I think there's a danger there in groupthink that happens. And I could see an official like Eric Lewis believing that he really needs to get in there and set the record straight, but really... You know, what percentage of people is he really talking to? I mean, is he talking to, like, 50 people that feel very loud to him? Like, I don't, you know, I well, don't and, understand and that, that. And that's the problem is that I think on Twitter a lot of times it's, like, a fan of a team. So, like, there's yeah. no way you're gonna ever going to convince them any other 100%. way. So, like, if there's a Heat fan and they call a foul on Jimmy Butler, like, and he defends it, well, no, I'm a, I'm a Heat fan. Jimmy Butler didn't foul him for sure. Like, so there's really no winning in that case. But – at the same time, it would have to be hard to just hear how you're fixing games and you're betting on games and you're controlling the outcome of all these basketball games when, in fact, you're just doing your job and trying to do it the best of your ability. I think there's um, there's also another factor here in that, you know, I just think some people are more built to withstand criticism than others. I find it interesting that a referee who gets booed in the stadium, booed unmercifully, like, unmercifully booed, in the stadium, nobody's cheering the referee on a game night that a referee might just be finally tired enough of it to bark back a little bit and knows he can't clap back with the whistle on and, and the uniform on. It's a good conversation. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. You're hearing about all this Taco Tuesday stuff that's going on, the battle for Taco Tuesday. Apparently, Taco John's has held the trademark for the phrase Taco Tuesday since 1989. Uh, it doesn't matter that they uh, did not invent or originate the term. They hold the trademark in 49 states, and they have done what you're supposed to do with trademarks. You enforce the power of the trademark. Um, uh, for example, um, I hold the trademark on bald-faced truth. There was another 
radio podcast that uh, was trying to use that same um, same title, and I had to write them a letter going, hey, you know, like, can you cease and desist? You have to do that if you want to uh, continue to have the trademark. Michael Buffer, Michael Buffer, the ring announcer, he's got a trademark. You know what it is? Well, fire up, uh, fire up the sound here because I'm going to play a clip. Tonight, we are going to witness the most anticipated match in the history for the heavyweight championship of the world. Are you ready? Are you ready? For the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world, ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! Michael Buffer, Michael Buffer secured the trademark for that catchphrase in 1992. He has made more than $400 million from its use. He sold the rights. He sells it to uh, video games, TV shows, movies, merchandise. Um, he's made more from the trademark than he has from actually announcing the events. It's true. The newspaper I used to work for, once upon a time, put, are you ready to rumble? on a March Madness placard that was put on the newspaper stands. Uh, Michael Buffer offers rewards for people who spot infractions or people infringing upon that trademark, and he offers a portion of whatever settlement he gets to the person reporting it. So if you see a, are you ready to rumble somewhere where it shouldn't be, Michael Buffer will pay you for reporting it. And uh, the newspaper had to pay $10,000 from using Are You Ready to Rumble on a cardboard placard that it put on the side of the newspaper stands. He licensed the phrase, and it's not too shabby, because he, by the way, he got into boxing announcing. We had him on the show. He got into announcing because he wanted to see fights for free. And so he was, he's a big fan. And then he just became the ring announcer guy. Well, Taco Tuesday is at the center of a fight as well. This Taco John's, um, is uh, basically enforcing its power over every smaller restaurant in America who uses Taco Tuesday for a special. Now, Taco Bell, you may know, has recently taken up the fight. They're defending the little guy. Uh, Taco Bell is trying to free Taco Tuesday from Taco John's. They filed a legal petition to cancel the trademark registration of Taco Tuesday, and they noted that they don't want to own the trademark. They just want to cancel Taco John's ownership so that the phrase can be released to the public and used at Tex-Mex restaurants far and wide. Now, Taco Bell also recruited LeBron James to bring some celebrity to this campaign, and it's clear that Taco Bell is using this for promotional purposes as well. By the way, LeBron actually tried to trademark Taco Tuesday for his own brand, but the uh, United States Patent and Trademark Office rejected the claim saying that Taco Tuesday is a commonplace term widely used by a variety of, sport, of sources. Now, this is, a, this is a beef. It's a taco beef, so to, so to speak. Um, Jack in the Box is getting in on this as well. 
they want to go uh they filed for ownership of Taco Tuesday night. Um <laughs> but Taco John's is uh is basically going, "Hey, thank you for the publicity." Cuz I don't know about you guys, I never heard of Taco John's before this battle. Stephen, have you heard of Taco John's before now? No, that's a negative. What do you think should happen here? This skirmish. You know? I mean, you got to you got to rule in favor of who has the trademark. You can't just go against it. Like they did that on purpose. It's the same thing with the Commanders team name that we talked about the other day in my five yeah. my great 5 and 5. You know, they uh you know, you got that guy has the the <laughs> name. Like you can't just steal it from them. He owns that right. Uh you got to you got to give it to him. I got in a mild beef with this podcast, it was a it was a political podcast that was trying to use bald face truth, and I was like, "Hey, I've hosted a radio show for seventeen years. I've got the trademark on it. I could try to legally enforce that on on you." And by the way, there is you don't even really need to have the trademark if somebody just rips off something that you have used publicly in that format. You could enforce and you could give them a cease and desist and force them to not use it. I generally try not to be. Um, I guess aggressive with that, like Michael Buffer is, but you also are required by the by trademark law to aggressively enforce where you see infractions and infringements. You're supposed to do that, and so I, I reached out to this guy who was doing this political podcast, and I said, "Hey, I've done this for 17 years, uh, this radio show. I uh, just uh, I don't want to have a big fight, but would just like to see you." Uh, you know, not do it. And and he got a little snippy with me, you know, like he basically was pushing back. And then I just said, to hell with it, I'll just refer it to my attorney. And then he went away and he changed the name of his podcast. But it was it was weird to me that that happened. And then now I see Taco Tuesday. I had no idea that Taco John's had the trademark on it. Like, you know, can you I guess can you really do that? And to your commander's point, Stephen. It shouldn't have been that hard for somebody to research. There's actually a website you can go to, and you can you can look up all the trademarks, and you can go, you know, should I, do I need to, uh, you know, is anybody else named Commanders? Anybody else named Guardians? You know, if they're a minor league team that's got the patent on it, well, you know, it, it shouldn't be that ridiculous. It sounds like that needs to be my new side hustle. Just go through and think of new team names that there could possibly be and try to get yes. their trademark and then force these professional teams to pay me. That's it's that's my new side Kind of like gig. squatting on domains. Yeah, that's that's my new you know? that's my new side gig, John. There used to be a domain uh that involved the Trailblazers. And I can't remember the exact I wrote a story about this. I'm blanking on what the exact domain, but it was negative. Like the Trailblazers organization went out and bought up all the domains that could be negative derivatives of Trailblazers.com, and it was you know stuff like I hate the Trailblazers.com, and they bought them all, and they they paid people for them, and I, this is the dirty little business that was going on behind the scenes. All right, the five at five starring Anna is coming up top of the hour. She's back from her exclusive tour of Europe, Scandinavia, and the subcontinent. She'll join us next. Well, she's back. Anna's back from her exclusive tour. She was uh, she was in Taiwan, and uh, she was retrieving her dad, who is uh, on the other side of the wall of this studio, probably wondering why he's hearing voices. Uh, <laughs> Anna, uh, your dad's in America. Yeah. How did that feel? Welcome back. Welcome Thank back. Thank you. She just got back. Thank you. Feels like it was just yesterday. 
uh, it was, in fact, just yesterday. Um, it's good. You know, Taiwan is tropical. Mm. It's like that wet, humid, hot. So it's like you walk outside and you're drenched in about 60 seconds. Kind like, of what hot. are we talking about? How, how warm was it where, where you were? Uh, I, I never actually looked at my at the temperature because I, I didn't want to know. Um, I just knew it was real hot. <laughs> Not anything you could do about it. And everyone, everyone, everyone is still wearing masks. So that oh, really? was that was really enjoyable. They don't know the pandemic's over. <laughs> well, they were actually having an uptick in COVID while I was mm. there. Uh, so that that was that was super fun. I should say good morning to you. Yeah, I know. It's eight oh one in Taipei right now. Did you add Taipei to your world clock? I did add Taipei to my world clock because yeah. I wanted to know uh-huh. what time it was. Oh. What is your body clock telling you? Yeah, yeah. Um, eight oh one. Good morning. Good uh, morning. How, you, how are you feeling? Are you a little zombie-ish? I'm okay. Um, I'm a, I'm a little out of body. Hmm. Uh, it, it was. It's a long journey home um, when you've got four massive suitcases and a 77-year-old guy. Uh, but we made it. You smuggled a 77-year-old man out of the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And for people who don't know, um, Anna's father lost his wife a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he was calling you and sort of uh, reporting that he, was, he wasn't doing well. And uh, you... Like a good daughter, jumped on a plane. Well, let me just backtrack. You jumped on a plane and flew to Seattle. Yeah, because I, yeah. I looked at my passport, which I didn't realize had lapsed. And and that's a yeah. problem. You can't really leave America unless you have a valid passport. Um, and so I had to get that rectified and then flew directly from Seattle to Taiwan. And But you, spent, ha- you spent the whole day in Seattle. I did. You got your passport done? I did. You ate lunch? I Yes. How's Seattle doing? How's downtown Seattle right now? It's uh, The portion I was in was not great. I really was only about six blocks from the Columbia Tower, which is their tallest skyscraper. And that's where the office is, um, where they do passports on the fly like that. And it's it's they're they're struggling. They've got a real fentanyl problem. They've got a real homeless problem. Mm. And as, as far as the downtown core, there were just uh, a lot of overdoses going on, even just while I was there. It was really? Kinda, it was really sad. So Then you fly to Taiwan. Yeah. You land in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. By the way... That- By the way, when I was there, yeah. Como News was doing an in-depth sweeps piece about... It was called Lessons Learned from Portland. Oh. And they oh. interviewed uh, <laughs> Mayor Ted Wheeler. Oh, man. Which... I found interesting. I was riveted on what they might have learned from Portland. Basically saying Portland was a mess. <laughs> now we're a mess. This is what we've learned? I, I, Yeah. I wasn't really sure what the lesson was except like yeah. don't be like Portland. It's like two guys with high <laughs> cholesterol on the bus talking to each other about their diets. Yeah. Is that what that is like? I don't know. And I, I don't mean to make light of it, obviously, oh. because there's a real serious problem. Obviously, it's going to take us as a community to fix it. But, um, yeah. Okay, that's... so you fly from Seattle to Taipei, direct. Uh-huh. Takes you about 12 and a half hours on that flight. How'd yeah. that flight go for you? Yeah. Yeah, you, did you settle in? Did you sleep on the plane? Did, I, you know? It was uh, one of the only smart things I've done, which is I, I was intentional about sleeping. Because I knew when I got there, it would be 5 a.m. Taipei mm-hmm. time, 
and I had about a week to uh, basically wrap up my dad's life there and get him back here. I wasn't even sure, actually, Shanghai at him. that point. You're going to Shanghai your dad. Don't know if that's politically correct, but... Um, uh, yeah, I, had, I knew, and I wasn't even sure going there that he wanted to come back to America, where oh. he did live for quite some time. So um, I just, I knew time was short, and so I slept as much as I could on the flight there so that when I got there, I could adjust as okay. well as I could. So you did well, yeah. then you got there. Mm-hmm. Um, how'd you do with the language? You speak <laughs> Mandarin, You, but they also speak Taiwanese there. Which is a dialect of Mandarin. Right. There's so, like 200 di- I I don't know. There's like a million dialects of Mandarin. Give Chinese, us a different so. give us a flavor of Mandarin versus Taiwanese. Okay. Like help us hear it. Okay. Yeah. So, uh so like Mandarin to say I'm hungry, which actually is true right now. I'm hungry is uh 我肚子饿. Like okay. my stomach is hungry. Okay. in okay. Taiwanese is 我爸都要 Okay. So, like, to watch TV in Mandarin, you say, 看电视. In Taiwanese, it's 我看电视. Like, how do you learn that? It, I, I, it's the weirdest because thing. Because you, you, know, you know Mandarin. I've heard you in China speaking Mandarin to people. Yes. But how do you learn Taiwanese? I think, and this is what I realized when I was there, is I think that I absorbed whatever Taiwanese my parents spoke to each other um, when they were still around each other, uh, when I like between the ages of zero and like eleven ish. All right. So when you're so. speaking with relatives in Taiwan, and how or did you have like an extensive group of relatives there? I did. I do. Yes. All right. So are you speaking yes. Taiwanese or Mandarin or some blend? I was speaking Mandarin to them, but I was finding myself like verbalizing things and f- like discovering phrases that I apparently know in Taiwanese that were just coming out of me. Do you think that really maybe weird. you're a sleeper cell and you're a CIA agent and this was your awakening? That is the next possible, the next logical conclusion is that, yes. All of a sudden you yes. knew exactly what to do yeah. to get your passport. I find that interesting <laughs> that you were like, I need to go to Seattle. Yeah. I need to have a nine millimeter gun, a Glock. <laughs> Whatever. $10,000 in cash and a new identity. I got a duffel bag. I got a go bag right here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Everybody's got a go bag, right? You've got a go bag, right? So you sent sent me a – you FaceTimed with me one time, and one of your cousins there is running around on a basketball court. He had a LeBron jersey on. I know. It's so cute. Yeah, he's like 12 or 13 and huge Lakers LeBron fan, just head to toe in LeBron and Nike and – that kind of stuff is fascinating to me because I'm like, wow, like they're so into NBA culture and American culture in those ways mm-hmm. that it it really hits home, like the reach that this global brand. Like when I told him that I live, you know, within a drive of Nike headquarters, yeah. which he didn't know, oh. it like blew his mind. He was like, what? Yeah. You know? He's like, you could just go to Nike anytime. I was like, well, no, actually, you need to know somebody who has who works there and can get you into the employee store. It would blow his mind to go to the employee store. Absolutely, yes. Uh, That would be phenomenal. Okay, so um, you know, you're there, you're running around getting your dad's affairs in order. Yeah, you're. uh, You had another uncle or a cousin that was wearing all Prada. You know, yeah. they, but it wasn't real Prada. It was like knockoff. Louis, Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton well, knockoffs. I, you know, I don't know for sure. I, I, 
He's not, not going to listen to this podcast. No, I know, but it's not like I was I was going to ask him if but it was you real. You suspect it was Yeah. 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 Okay, so um <laughs> is that somewhere you, like should we move the show there? Could we live there? Would you want to be there? I like, mean, what's the cost of living like? We could live there. Give us the cost of living. Uh, it's super cheap as far as the food in the southern part of the country. So, like, uh, you can take a f- your family of five okay. out. Stephen's a- family. Stephen's family yeah. could go out for a decent dinner, um, a-, a-, a nice dinner. Yeah. For like forty bucks, thir- maybe thirty, okay. maybe thirty. Okay. You know. No, they don't have American inflation right now. They like, do not yeah. when it comes to those kind of things. The things that are really expensive there are the luxury items like iPhones. Um, I remember that. I remember when uh, your your aunt came yes. over to visit. Yeah, she went to the Apple store. Yeah, and she got like seven iPads, uh-huh. and that and that's what she was here for. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I was like, you don't want to like you don't want any kettle corn or you don't want. Portland gear. Yeah, she wanted the iPad because apparently the luxury tax on those kind of things is pretty high. I mm. don't know. I don't okay, know. so um, at what point did you realize that the seventy-seven-year-old man who is your father was coming home with you? Uh, well, within twenty-four hours, I realized that he probably should come home with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was probably the next twenty-four hours where we had the conversation that 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 is. How did that feel to you? Uh, daunting because, you know, anybody who's taken care of, um, an elderly loved one knows that that is not a small undertaking to embark on, right? Because, you know, um, it's a big responsibility. There's a lot to it. And so how did it feel? It feels good to be in a position to be like, hey, come either live near us, like with us temporarily, but ideally maybe near us if you can live independently. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't know. I, I guess I, I'm probably still processing exactly yeah. how that you all You don't feels. even know what day it is. You said earlier today you thought it was Wednesday or I know. something. I know. And I was like, you're not right about the day. Yeah. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know. You're 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 confused right now. And this so the five <laughs> at five is gonna be phenomenal. Oh, it's gonna be great. Um, I have so many more questions for you, <laughs> but let's do the five at five. Okay. And then maybe I can squeeze in a couple more questions. Stephen, uh, by the way, filled in in your absence. Yeah, how do you how do you do? Stephen, let's talk about Stephen, him. Like how he did can't you do? hear us right now. Um, Stephen, how did you do? I was okay. I didn't want again. I don't want to go too. I didn't want to be too good. I didn't want to you know make it so Anna <laughs> felt bad when she came back. Um, so I held back. Oh, is that way? I held back just a little bit, but I mean I was pretty solid. I'd say. You I'd say about an eight out of ten. He yeah. was he was like a sparring partner, you know. He didn't want to knock the champ out, but he's just gonna spar a little bit, and get you know, be a good workout. But also, like, if you prove yourself to be too good at something, that can be, you know, that can be risky. That people start expecting things. Right. I, I don't want to be pigeonholed. Yeah. You know. I right. Don't, yeah. I don't want to be in a box. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, Anna, with the return, should you do the five at five in Taiwanese or Mandarin, or should we just do it in English? Uh, let's, let's go for English. Okay, we're going to do it in English today. All right, here we go. The five at five. (laughs) The five at five. Number one story is Anna sees it. Speaking of Nike, man, where's our endorsement check here? Uh, Nike releases a new set of shoes. Yeah. That makes sense. mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're John Morant shoes. Okay. So despite the whole gun thing. Yeah. His shoes, which are called Hunger. Jaw One Hunger, yeah. 
Um, they uh, they seem to be so the, it like the schedule drop seemed to be up in the air because Nike released all of or they erased all of his shoes yeah. off of their website last week. And so people were wondering whether the brand was going to suspend the sale oh. or even suspend its relationship with Ja due to his issues off the court. Uh-huh. But they still dropped it, and the fans uh, bought them for 110 bucks before they sold out. They sold out? In, and some fans were saying they sold out in like three minutes. So they were frustrated. I have a, do you think Nike accelerated the release of the shoe to capitalize on the marketing and also just in the event that he goes totally sideways like Antonio Brown and some other athletes have their you know their inventory is cleaned out do you think they do you think they're being opportunistic here or is this coincidental um i don't think anything that nike does is coincidental okay i don't so i don't know i don't know that the answer to your question is yes but uh, they have some of the best marketing minds in the world there. Yeah. So it's not a complex conversation because I'm just thinking if you got a warehouse full of John Morant hunger shoes and you're going, is this guy going to play again or is the NBA going to suspend him or what is he going to do next? And you're mm-hmm. like, I guess now is as good a time as any to just release these shoes and see what happens. And apparently fans bought him up. Steven, is there a reason why people want the jaw hunger shoes? Yeah, I think it's what you talked about. Like if he goes crazy. They want a part, you know, people like, uh, you know, they collect serial killer stuff. Like, I think people, not that Jaw, you know, not comparing Jaw to a serial killer, but, but like, people love that stuff. So I think they, they're they doing that hoping he goes crazy and then they can sell it again. Oh, jeez. So next up, Nike will release the Jeffrey Dahmer's <laughs> one shoes. Show just went dark. Okay. Thanks, thanks. Number two story as you, as you see it. Um, so the NBA is considering bold action to prevent flopping. So they're considering making flops a technical foul. Uh, This is from Shams at The Athletic. Okay. Uh, The NBA Competition Committee is discussing the potential of an in-game penalty for flops that would result in a tee, uh, a free throw. Discussions are underway that could lead to a trial run of that rule during Summer League as soon as July. I like it. Uh, Steven, I'm going to defer to you two on this, though. How difficult will it be to identify what a flop is? Or do we all know a flop when we see one? Um, I think it's going to be difficult in live action. Like, I, I, This is the problem with it. If they're going to go and they're going to do replays about it, they'll be able to figure out if it's a flop. But to be able to tell like on the court live, it's a lot harder than you think it is. And so I'm afraid that it will slow down the game too much and we have to go back and forth to replays, which would be a problem. So I don't necessarily like this rule if they're going to do it because... Like, I'm okay with flopping and accentuating the call. Like, that's part of sports. But just don't, like, clog the game up with a lot of replays and a lot of time wasted for one little flop. I I just feel like this is a little overreaction. In FIBA, international basketball, they have a flop rule. If a referee thinks a player is flopped, they just call it a technical foul. But they uh, – and and Steve Kerr has been a big proponent of this. He says they basically have eliminated flopping in international competition – um, is it a sportsmanship issue, guys? Like, is it like is flopping bad sportsmanship or is it good strategy? Because you see players like James Harden or LeBron will get calls, and we all go, "Oh, they're so smart. That's a veteran player." But it seems in international play that people kind of deem it, you know, that's poor sportsmanship. That's a technical foul. Uh, is it is flopping bad sportsmanship? 
Well, it's interesting in soccer because they, you know, same thing. Like, they will flop in soccer to get a foul call as well. So, like, to think international basketball is the one the one sport that is against flopping, I don't know. I, I think it's more gamesmanship. Like, I think it's an, it's an art. Like, not everyone can do it. And no, our seven-year-old or nine-year-old is a great flopper. <laughs> That's true. The nine-year-old. Kids, more, kids more are great floppers. But LeBron, Shh. not a great flopper. <laughs> don't let her say that. <laughs> don't let her hear that. I mean. Yeah. Number. What am I on? I don't know. I'm the one sleep deprived. I think I'm on. This is I'm on three. three. Yeah. Wow, pros here. We're just total pros. Um, the cheapest tickets to Nebraska's Week One game at Colorado. This Coach Prime experiment. They're selling for about four hundred dollars. That's more expensive. Uh, is that Week One or Week Two? I think it is. Is two. isn't Week One TCU? I, it's yeah, but Week Two. It's Colorado's home opener. Home. Home. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. The Chiefs. Okay. So the four hundred bucks. That's more expensive than the Chiefs' home opener. Mm-hmm. Nebraska's home opener by twenty-two times. The Celtics and Heat's game five. Wow. Golden Knights and Stars game four. And for a family of four, that's more expensive than the average mortgage payment in Nebraska. Well, there you have. I think it's demand not only created by Coach Prime but rabid Nebraska fans. Nebraska travels well. Yeah. And this is a traditional Big 12 matchup. Nebraska, Colorado, that's that's a legacy matchup. So you have on top of things, you know, like it, the only thing better would be if Oprah Winfrey instead of <laughs> Ralphie the Buffalo was going to run out of the tunnel and go, you get one, you get one, you get one. And then maybe this ticket goes up in value. But this is like a perfect storm of Coach Prime, sold-out season tickets, Nebraska, Colorado, maybe some good weather in Boulder. This is this is good for Colorado. Colorado, think about this. This program was not worth a damn a year ago. I know. Nobody talked about Colorado. It's amazing. Everybody's talking about Colorado. Good hire by Rick George. I'll say that before they, he's coached a game. It's a good hire. Hilarious, that phrase, though. They travel well. They travel well. They do travel well. They show up. It's like they show up in, like, three-piece suits. They travel well. I saw this uh, comedian was doing a bit about uh, vacations. Yeah. This just jarred memory mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, I, think it was I think it was like uh, Ricky Gervais. He was talking to Jerry Seinfeld about this. And he was, he was talking about that, you know how you, we pack the car for the vacation? Yes. And it's just. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a living hell. Yeah. Getting all the stuff into the I car. Know. Getting the kids into the car. Getting the car seats in the car. Yeah. Everybody's got their water bottle. Yeah. Here we go. Okay. Yeah. And. And then, you know, you're going on vacation, but it, but the comedian says his vacation is from the moment he closes his wife's door, and then he walks around to his door. That's his vacation. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it's work. Quit your whining. The rest of it's work. Number four. Uh, Major League Baseball reporter gets kind of grumpy. Uh, Bally Sports Detroit reporter Johnny Kane learned that uh, Wednesday night in Kansas City, uh, it's not great necessarily to be on live television, especially when you're doing it in front of a lot of fans during a sporting event. Mm-hmm. One of his segments during the Tigers-Royals game was interrupted by a fan who yelled just a whole bunch of bad words, and the bad words were picked up by his mic. It's kind of funny. And uh, the fans watching from home got to find out that one fan at the game really doesn't care for the Tigers. So, But the thing is, like, Kane shoots the fan like a really dirty look. <laughs> 
And it's pretty funny. Uh, like, it's just funny. Like, as a reporter, you, you got to know. Yeah. you got to know in a circumstance like that that that's going to happen. You can't let it irk you. You've been on live shots. Oh, Where come on. people either run up yeah. and they try to do, uh, they try to yell profanity or a passing car. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Remember when Chip Kelly and Aaron Andrews were on the sideline and, and she was interviewing him and the fans were all barking at Chip Kelly. Hey, will you shut up? Thank you. Um. <laughs> what do you do in that situation when you were doing a live shot for TV news? Yeah. Let's say you're on a street corner in downtown Portland and some Yahoo's coming up yelling profanity or mm-hmm. driving by with profanity. Do you ignore it? Do you address it? What do you do? Uh, you ignore it. You hope the mic didn't pick it up. And if it's prolonged, it's really on the folks in the booth to take the shot back. So they, you know, cut short whatever it is. I think it gives you a little flavor. (laughs) You know, this guy's at a Tigers-Royals game. Yeah. And now viewers at home feel like they're at a Tigers and Royals game. (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing is that the last thing you actually want to do as a reporter in a situation like that is to react negatively because then you're really giving the Yahoo what they want. So you can, like, the thing to do is to continue addressing the camera and you can actually talk about, like, the lack of intelligence that it takes to do that and then just proceed as well as you can. I was with... uh, uh, Go ahead, Steven. I was going to say, what's up with Kansas City and, like, announcers? Tom Brenneman, Kuiper, now this. What are we we doing over there? Something going on there. I was at Autzen Stadium one time, and I was down on the field before the game. And my uh, buddy Aaron Fentress, who was covering the team at the time, was with me. And we were about to walk the length of the field in front of the fan section. And I turned to him, and I said, listen, we're going to walk by these fans. They're going to yell profanity at me. Do not respond to it. I was used to it. Yeah. Okay? He wasn't used to it. Mm -hmm. And we walked the length of the field. And the first guy who yelled an f bomb, Fentress turned around and flipped him off. Oh no! And it Fentress. just in, it just invited Fentress. it just invited a <laughs> chorus of you know. And I said, "You can't! I just told you not to acknowledge the guy." And he couldn't help himself. Oh, that's Fentress. You gotta love him. Is that number five? No, no, number that five. was four. Number five. Um. This is barely a news story, but it's just, it's not, we don't call it the news at five. We just call it the five at five. Right, right, right. But I was intrigued by the fact that Nikola Jokic has his wedding ring um, during games. It's tied onto his basketball sneakers for every game. Anybody ever do that? Like if you go to the gym and you're playing a pickup game and you don't want to lose your ring. I put it in the locker. Or I put it. You don't say that. Or I'll put it in the. Uh, it, well, they'd have to follow me to the gym and see which <laughs> locker I pick. Or I, I, I don't feel good about leaving it in the car. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. Wise. Wise. Uh, also because it was my grandfather's wedding ring. Right. You know. Yeah. There's part of me that doesn't feel responsible leaving it anywhere. I know. It should just be in a safety deposit box. Yeah. Because there are these tiny little specks of diamonds on this ring I'm holding. Yeah, we'll adorable. get back to Nikola Jokic's diamond yeah, in a yeah. second. There's but really not much more there, to say. These are my grand, those were my grandmother's diamonds in her original wedding ring. I know. That they moved to this ring. And then when he, when he wasn't uh, living in poverty as they grew up, 
he was able to buy her a real diamond. Oh. So I look at the diamonds and I go, oh, those were my grand. That was like they're just specs. Yeah. But that was to her. That was making it so meaningful. Yeah. Now back to Nicola's thing. Does yeah. It, does I it don't... concern you that like it would fly off at some point or right be a problem? Somebody's gonna step on it. Like I don't know if his bride <laughs> sees that as a. His hey, bride. that's that's devotional. His bread. Maybe he's afraid to leave it in the locker room. You do get theft in locker room situations, especially visiting locker rooms. I love when people call their wives their brides. He's got bride. his bride. So like valiant. Like are we? Which century gonna, are we? I want to Google his bride. She's cute. She is. You yeah, look, she's you're cute. Already, you're way ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, she's cute. Yeah. But like, is the NBA going to fine him no. for uh, having for that on his shoes? Good luck finding him for that. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Cause an uproar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, can you stick around for just a couple minutes? I have so many more questions. Or you got to go? No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Just we'll do a quick segment coming back. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Anna's agreed to stick around for another segment. Appreciate that. Given that you live here, nice <laughs> of you to do that. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, your cousin Sophia plays uh, basketball professionally in Taiwan. <sighs> She's amazing. You got a chance to see her. Yeah. What's going on with her? Uh, she's in Taipei, and she is playing professional women's basketball and yeah. making history in the process because she's the first American woman of Taiwanese descent because she was born in America, but, you know, her family origin is in Taiwan, and she has she's the first person to ever, like, do that, to go mm-hmm. from America and go play professionally there. Does that give her some status? Do you, like, does she uh, draw a crowd on the street, or do people flock to games to see her play, or... Is that just, uh, hey, it's a nice, cool piece of history? No, she uh, was featured in a lot of news reports when she first arrived. I mean, featured heavily. Because um, it's a it's a athlete choosing to go back to Taiwan. Yeah. 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 You were born in Taiwan. I was. It's too bad you're not a great basketball player. Because <laughs> you could have been... Too bad. Left Taiwan and then thought, you know what? It It's so damn good, I need to go back. Yeah. That could have been the, the narrative. Well, apparently there's money in it for, like, foreigners who go and, mm-hmm. like, it, it helped me understand the American NBA players that we've talked about that go got, yeah. have gone there to play. I mean, they're landing, like, good-sized contracts yeah. to play there because Better, it's yeah. valued. And what she told me is you don't even have to be, like, a D1 player in college in America Steven. to go play there. Get to Taiwan. I'm there. Like, you don't even have had to have done that. You just go try out. Yeah. And if you make a team, like, you can make six figures. It's a big deal. I know. And it's, But especially big if somebody has played in the NBA and is kind of on the backside of their career. Yeah. And maybe they're not commanding a, a real playing time in America, a real deal. You can go there and get huge endorsement money and a big contract. Yeah. And, and you're a big deal. Yeah. I think, uh, I think who was over there recently? Steve Francis over there or somebody like uh, that? Dwight Howard's over there. Dwight Howard. Yeah, he was on that team that got in that big brawl and the assistant coaches all got in trouble. We did that at a 5-at-5, five five, right? Okay. Recently. What's a fight like at a Taiwanese <laughs> basketball game? Bench clear. Dare I say? No, I won't say it. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let me ask you this, too. Okay, so you're over there. Finally, um, differences between Americans and... Taiwanese people. Huge differences. Okay, lay it on us. Don't be afraid to hurt our feelings. 
Well, first of all, the kids go to elementary school kids go to school from 730 in the morning until 430 in the afternoon with no recess. Long day. And then many of them go to English tutoring about three days a week until eight o'clock after Brutal. their school day. Are they happy? I, that doesn't sound like a happy existence to me, but they're all striving. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting. And, and it intensifies even more as they go into middle school and high school. Um, it's an exceedingly polite country okay. in how people uh, greet one another and treat one another, just strangers even. Really? Yeah. like That's not bad. No, it's not. Um, it's definitely a learned behavior because I realize as an American, like I go over there and I'm very direct in how I talk to people and pretty quickly realize that like I could come off kind of brash and rude. And so, um, you know, common phrases that people are saying are like, oh, I'm so sorry to trouble you. If you have a moment, could you help me with this? Like even just like at a 7-Eleven or something, like their basic interactions with each other are layered with this level of like polite speaking. And um, why do you think that is? Uh, well, my dad says it's because Japan uh, occupied Taiwan for a long time in in history. So a Japanese influence. And so there's a Japanese influence there. Interesting. Uh-huh. Cuz it's not the same mainland China, very different. Yeah, very different. Yeah. Pretty uh pretty cutthroat. Um in America, you get Karen situations in America <laughs> and people freaking out. Like did you see any of that in Taiwan no. or no. People just very cordial to They're each other and exceedingly polite. cordial. Like, you know, I would be walking with my dad up to like a, a train stop where there was seating and like five young people. And by young people, I mean like people anywhere, you know, 60 and below would jump up and like offer him their seat. Really? Because there's just this extreme respect for elders. We should have that. Like. I'm not. I'm saying like that's not a bad thing, you know. Like that was that was kind of cool, actually. That's the way I was raised. Like if somebody has lived that long, yeah, you you kind of give them a nod. Yeah. Like, hey, you've been through some stuff. Right. And when right. I get there, I will have been through some stuff too, and a young person should give me their seat. Yeah. But we don't do that. We. I think part of it is just that the family unit in America. There's been a breakdown of families. And I don't think people are being raised, you know, to I, I find myself I hold a door for a stranger. Yeah. Today I did it. I did it today. I uh -huh. held a door for a stranger and the guy looked at me like he was surprised. Yeah. And I don't think in the in Taiwan that would be a surprise. Not to at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's there's like there's an efficiency to Taiwan, which is uh, interesting. Like they have a low tolerance for anything that is inefficient. So, like, if you go to, like, line up somewhere, there will be, be, like, three service people that are sort of politely rushing you through the line because they're, like, really? you know, if you drag your feet here, that doesn't make sense. So let's just get going with this. All right. So, th so situations like the DMV or going to the doctor's <sighs> office. Or yes. You were at government offices and banks a lot because you, yes. you were kind of going through this procedural stuff with your dad. Yes. And they... They cannot tolerate the idea of like waiting around to either serve you or to be served. So even like at a government, like at a bank, for example, it's not that big, but you come in and like you take a number because that's the most efficient way to get the line moving. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. But OK. And then what about like obviously you're walking around in Taiwan and a lot of Taiwanese people. 
Did you see Americans? Did you see white people in Taiwan? Yeah, I did. I saw white people. I saw black people. I saw um, lots of people from other races, more predominantly in the larger cities like Taichung and Taipei. So there was They're some, very international. There was some diversity. Yeah. So if, you know, if a black person or a white person, Hispanic person is walking down the street in Taiwan, is it um, that Taiwanese people are turning and looking? Or? They do turn and look, and de and it depends on you know if you're in a more remote part of the country, they will turn and look yeah. just to kind of check you out and try to figure out what you are and where you're from, kind of thing. Yeah, they're not rude about it. They're just maybe a little curious. I remember being with you in China, and we were at the Forbidden City, and a bunch of tourists, mostly Chinese, and I'm there, and people were wa walking up saying, "Can I take a picture with you?" Because I looked different than yeah. people in China. Yeah. And not, you know, and they, they, I was posing for pictures with people at the Forbidden City. <laughs> right. I thought Would it was just because the bald face truth is huge in China. <laughs> That's because we're big. We're big in the You're Forbidden global. City. It's global. But it was almost like, you know, it was a novelty act. Yeah. You know, like, look at this guy. Hey, here, I was at the Forbidden City and I ran into this giant weirdo, you know? I think some of that has dissipated. Um, you know, like, I just ran into one of the Molden kids and I was telling him that I just got back from Taiwan. And he said, oh, my dad's been to Taipei because hmm. he works for Nike. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it, some aspects of Taiwan are very international. In Interesting. So. All right. Oh. So uh, I might have to go there someday. Well, yeah. Check it out. You, yes. You know? Yes. Would my language be an issue or do a lot of people speak English? Or A lot of people can I, speak can English. Can I get all the Taiwanese people to speak English around me or is that rude? <laughs> you know? No. They actually, um, they want their kids badly to speak English. Like my yeah. little cousins that I like mm -hmm. had lunch with, they weren't allowed to speak to me in Chinese. Really? Oh, their they parents to were like, talk to yeah. her only in English. And they were very direct. Right. About when we were in China and also in New York City, you and I have encountered some people who didn't like the fact that you're Asian yeah. and I'm not Asian. Yeah. Mainly Asian older men. <laughs> yeah. If we're in Taiwan. Uh-huh. And you and I are walking down the street. Yeah. Is that a problem in I don't Taiwan? Know. It might be, but less so now. I think it's. You, you think? Know, yeah, some time has passed. We'll see about that. All right. <laughs> Leave it here. You got the BFT. I don't know if you enjoyed uh, that last couple of segments, but I did. I'm, uh, I'm a little strange that way, though. I'm just interested. I like hearing about places I haven't been, things I don't know. Uh, in the same way that I like hearing, uh, you know, about, um, you know, the guy who runs the scoreboard inside Fenway Park's Green Monster or the person who's in charge of the Ivy at Wrigley Field or, you know, at the end of Blazer games when the confetti drops down from the rafters. And I, uh, I've noted that uh, I've been in the arena late, at, long after fans leave that, you know, there's a crew waiting in the tunnel right at the end of the game and, you know, confetti drops and... The fans go home, and that crew comes out like a pit crew and sweeps up the confetti and puts it back into giant trash bags, and then they take it back up into the rafters, and they recycle it, and they use it again the next time the Blazers win a game. Blazers win. Blazers win. You know? So it's um, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. I did a story one time about um, Sarah Farfan, who was one of the housekeepers who uh, cleans up the Blazers' locker room at the end of the day. I like that. I did another piece on a, a lady named Jeannie Havercroft who wanted to bring her her husband Bob to uh, Autzen Stadium for football games. And Bob had died years earlier, 
Jeannie kept bringing him one bit of ashes at a time to Autzen Stadium till she was out of Bob, and then she liked the ritual so much she had the cat Fluffy cremated after it passed and started spreading Fluffy at Autzen Stadium. Uh, I love these stories. How about the story of, uh, you know, uh, Oregon State, former Oregon State football player, giant killer named Bob Jeremiah, who had a football helmet that he gave to a little kid after a game. Then he went off to Vietnam and lived a life. And that little kid, I wrote a piece about that little kid growing up. And uh, Jeff Heller was his name. He is his name. That kid wanted to get the helmet back to Bob Jeremiah. And I wrote about that helmet coming full circle. I just love that stuff, and Anna talking about her cousin and the language, and you know maybe you go on a journey you you uh, otherwise wouldn't have gone on, and you don't have to get on a 15-hour flight to take it. Uh, good stuff on today's show. We're not done though. Uh, we have talked about what you would change in sports, and it really relates to the piece I wrote today at JohnConzano.com about um, you know the idea that uh, the Pac-12 conference had a baseball tournament a year ago that was a little messy. You know, the, the games were, it was too many games. It was double elimination format. It, it was, they played all the way to Sunday. And then the best teams in the conference, because Stanford played Oregon State the championship game on Sunday last year. Then selection Monday, the bids went out for the regionals. Both those teams and everybody else in the Pac-12 had to turn right around with their weary pitching staffs. And they had to go and play regionals. So, you know, the Pac-12 did what any reasonable business would do. It looked at the problem, and the problem really was, hey, we uh, screwed up with the format of this thing. Should never have been double elimination. It should have just been round robin and then semifinals and then a championship. And they fixed it this year. And, you know, it's hot in Arizona, okay? It's really, I mean, we all know that. It's blistering hot in Arizona. It's already uh, it's so hot in Arizona that that you have schools out for summer already. They're out for summer. They've been out for summer for a while. They go to summer in May, and it's 98 degrees today in the Phoenix area. It's 98 degrees right now in Phoenix, and so you have Pac-12 baseball teams that are playing long games, long days, hot weather. And so I like that, you know, we talked to Mitch Canham, the Oregon State coach on this show. We talked with Mark Wasikowski, the Oregon coach on this show. Both of them said that, hey, they like the idea that at the end of last year, at the end of that thing, when the season ended, the coaches got together a couple times and they talked about, like Canham said, we talked about what worked, we talked about what didn't work, and then they made some tweaks to it. And they came up with, hey, instead of playing double elimination, Let's instead go to um, a round-robin format in the early rounds. There will be nine teams instead of eight. It'll be three pools of three teams. And then, uh, and then you, get, you, know, you get together and, and let them play uh, a semifinal and then a championship round. And by the way, let's play the semifinal on Friday and the championship on Saturday. That way, all your pitchers get an extra day off. Because the regionals are coming. And you, what you don't want is what the situation really that Oregon State ended up in a year ago. Oregon State played on Saturday of last year. It, you know, they played in a double elimination. They played against UCLA. And game one, 
went five hours and 45 minutes. There were 565 pitches thrown. Oregon State blew a seven-run lead in the last inning. Game went to extra innings. Oregon State lost it. It was a marathon. 45 minutes later, 90, 90 degrees, 45 minutes later, they had to come back and play a second game against UCLA. It didn't end until 11.31 p.m. It was 88 degrees when they made the final out of that game. Oregon State won it, and less than 24 hours later had to come back on Sunday and play Stanford in the championship game. They lost 9-5 to to Stanford and then basically went, whew, Like, and oh, by the way, in six days, you're part of the regional. So I, this is what I like. So that was what was, what was wrong. But this is what I like. The Pac-12 baseball coaches got together and went, hey, that really that didn't work for us. We're, we can't do that again. Uh, we're not doing that again. And they decided to tweak the format. And, and look, you do this all the time in your own home. Something doesn't work. What do you do? You go, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. Or you talk to your significant other and you go, hey, this isn't working. Let's figure out how to fix this. And you go about making it right. And I like that, you know, we all look around and we go, you know, hey, we do this at home. We make tweaks. We make adjustments. Steven does it. Judah does it. I do it. You do it. Your family does it. My family does it. You make adjustments, right? That's part of life is adjusting and going, hey, this didn't work last time. How do we do this better? And in the end, you end up with a change that hopefully is better. But the problem that we have often in sports and in business and especially in government is that we see inefficiency and we see a unwillingness for the principals involved to make those changes and we go this is insanity why are we repeating this same thing what is the plan what are they doing here why does a hammer cost five hundred dollars you know it's we go through that stuff and and what I love about what happened with this baseball thing is somebody saw something that was wrong that that needed to be fixed and they fixed it by George they fixed it and I think there's that's worth us all sort of going hey let's give a little bit of a nod to a conference that has just been not very good in a lot of ways you can talk all you want about the media rights conundrum and the branding and the messaging of the last nine months. And you can talk about officiating in the football season. I don't, you know, I think it's been, there have been some procedural errors that are just egregious. And we can talk about the fact that the men's basketball teams have largely not competed the way that they should. There's a problem there. And here's the issue, though, about the baseball problem that that the Pac-12 was able to so easily just course correct and fix it. I think it's the people involved. I heard from unsolicited. I heard from one of the Pac-12 ADs. I'll just say it. Dave Hickey, the Arizona athletic director, reached out to me. He He's a subscriber. He reads me at johnconzano.com. He reached out to me and he said, hey, I really appreciated that column today. He said, I'm a baseball guy. He is. He played baseball. And he said, you know, you're right. There was something not right and it got fixed. I think we all really just want the NFL, the NBA, the Trailblazers, 
the Oregon Ducks, Oregon State, the Pac-12. We want these entities to act more like our families and more like good businesses. They are businesses. And that when there is something wrong, go fix the damn thing. Don't sit around going, you know, there's something wrong, but, you know, we're just paralyzed by the idea of changing or addressing the problem and acknowledging there was a problem in the first place. But I want to give the Pac-12 a little credit on that front, the baseball coaches in particular, because they were like, uh-uh, that didn't work. Like, you look at what happened in the postseason. Oregon got beat in the opening round in the regional. You you know, Stanford made it to Omaha, but once they got to Omaha, their pitching was so depleted they gave up 17 runs in the in the opening game against Arkansas. Oregon State got to the Super Regional and fizzled out. And, and I think it was UCLA was the other team. Lost in the opening round. Like, it was evident that, like, strong suspicion that the pitching in the Pac-12 took a beating in that Pac-12 tournament that harmed the postseason. We're back tomorrow. I hope you get some rest tonight. We're going to pitch nine solid innings tomorrow on this show.